Hi, I'm Lawrence Krauss and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm very happy that we're finally able to release our podcast with Michael Schellenberger. Michael and I had our dialogue well over a year ago when his book Apocalypse Never first appeared and after my book The Physics of Climate Change appeared. I want to discuss these climate change issues with him and it may sound from the titles of the book that were poles apart, but we weren't. And I think it's a matter of emphasis and priorities. And I think it was a very interesting give and take discussion. Uh, I think the important point that he makes in particular, that third world countries really need energy and water infrastructures. And that's more important in the near term than getting them to sustainable uh, carbon free uh, energy production mechanisms is, is worth discussing. And I think it's incredibly important that we realize that they really need that urgently. We also discussed nuclear power, which we both agree is an important component of any carbon-free future. Maybe different emphasis on it, but I certainly applaud the work and and, and effort he's put into trying to make it clear that we should not be closing down safe nuclear power plants. We were ready to release the podcast, and then I discovered that uh, Michael was running for governor of California, and I thought, well, it's really appropriate to update our discussion. So I managed to meet up with him and on Zoom, and we had a, uh, a discussion about the issues that are important to him and important to California for this coming election and potentially for the world as well. So I was happy to be able to update our earlier discussion with that. So I hope you enjoy our Double Decker podcast with Michael Schellenberger. You can watch it in many different ways. If you want to watch the ad-free version, I hope you'll go to our Substack site, Critical Mass, and if you sign up as a subscriber, you can watch the ad-free video, or you can watch the video on our YouTube channel, the Origins Project Foundation YouTube channel. Or, of course, you can listen to the podcast on, on either of those, uh, uh, either our webpage or the Substack page or any of the standard uh, podcast listening sites. So, one way or another, I hope you'll enjoy this discussion with Michael Schellenberger. Thanks. Well, Michael, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, to be on the podcast. I, I've uh, I've wanted to talk to you for some time, and, and it's it's uh, it's going to be an, I think an interesting podcast because um, there's so many th- interesting things that you say, some of which I agree with, and some of which I don't. So it'll sure. be it'll be uh, uh, the stuff uh, you don't I, agree with will be more interesting. Yeah, may, yeah, maybe. Um, but I want to be since this is an origins podcast. I want to begin, as I often do, with your own origins, which I find really quite fascinating. So before we get on to other things, I wanted to talk about your background. You sort of began as an activist, but not really an environmental activist. Um, you were, you were, I guess, interested in, in sort of justice struggles in, in South America, as far as I can see. How did that come about? What got you interested in that? Yeah, so let's see. Um... My, I, my both sides of my family, my mother's and father's side, both come from Mennonites. And Mennonites are confused with the Amish, but the Mennonites uh, embrace some amount of modern technology, but are pretty against the government. They're anti-statist. They tend to be pacifists and conscientious objectors. Yeah. They tend to, they're the folks that went and worked in the mental hospitals during World War II. Um, and we're very active in the pacifist movements of the 20th century. Um, so I grew up very, and I was very politically um, interested from a very young age. 
I became very, my, my mother was a pretty moderate Democrat, I would say. My father was more left, um, more part of the new left. He was a little, he's not a baby boomer, he's just a few years older. Um, he was a he was a professor, a community college professor in Knox College near Chicago in the late '60s. Um, you know, uh, he's known John Podesta, who was Hillary Cam Hillary Clinton's campaign manager uh, since he was a, a you know in his 20s. Um, I became very upset about well, there's two things going on. I mean, in when I was the first political act I did was raise money for Rainforest Action Network. So to yeah. some extent, it was my first. Oh, um, but you're right. It, it, when I was 17, I went to Nicaragua. I learned Spanish. I wanted to support the Sandinista revolution pretty naively, but nonetheless, um, earnest and young socialists traveled around Central America, got very excited about the Workers' Party in Brazil, which is a radical, I mean, it's it moderated, but it was part of the radical left and part of the left. And I was very interested in small farmer movements, just very, just, just your average socialist <laughs> liberation theology probably represented my ideology well that's i was going to ask you about that when you talk about i'm glad you said that liberation theology which has been important in brazil and a bunch of other places but but you, it, you the connection to the mennonites interested me were you did you have a religious um interest in that were you religious are you religious uh, did that yeah so why don't you expound upon that a little yeah, that's such a, a difficult and challenging set of questions. But um, sure, I'll start by saying my mother had me confirmed as a Congregationalist Christian. Um, I was 15. I argued with the minister, who's a very nice person, but just on the basic questions of what is God? Yeah. What is heaven? Is there a hell? Well, no, not really. But then why is there a heaven? How do we know any of this? At 15, yeah. I was I was left very cold. Um, uh, so I was not a Christian, um, at least not uh, by doctrine. If maybe yeah. by culture, I think you could probably say I was, and maybe even by politics in the sense of a preferential option for the poor, mm -hmm. which is something that has stayed with me. And I think is in Apocalypse Never. So that part stayed. In, in my father was ordained, uh, my, not ordained, my father has a degree in theology as well as a PhD in philosophy. So we spend a lot of time talking about philosophy. We're, our, I would say my father and I, and now my son, were in what I would call the existentialist tradition. We think Heidegger, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard are the kind of three of the most important thinkers of all time. Um, I've been a huge uh, lay reader of Nietzsche, have read most of his major works multiple times. And for Apocalypse Never, I did come back to, I think, a kind of faith. It had to do with me trying to write chapter 12 and wanting to not become, you know, he who fights with monsters, yeah, he who gazes into the abyss, right? So Nietzsche says you have to be careful here, right? That you don't get angry and and that your anger doesn't become a kind of central motivation, um, and that it be an emotion that you experience, but not the underlying driver of your politics. So obviously, I was kind of like, where do I go with all this? Yeah. <laughs> I was struggling that last chapter, and um, you know, I was actually came back to my father because so often, as where a lot of our spirituality comes from. And he was, he, at the end of his, uh, not the end, but he, 
basically when he kind of got done with Christianity in the ways that the Mennonites would have taught it, he basically arrived at these historical studies of what Jesus actually said and mm -hmm. did. And they're controversial, so I'm not going to yeah. defend them yeah. in any kind of historical yeah. or theological sense. But I went and read them, and I and and you know, like like the stuff that they think is the most authentic is the most mystical parts. And for me, I read through these, you know, just the stuff that they think he said, and I was like, clearly, the most profound and challenging thing that Jesus ever said was to love thy enemies. And it's so difficult. And it's almost like I realized at that moment that that wasn't something that because I can't do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that's not like you haven't failed. You just need to keep doing that. And so there's sort of like I you need to love thy enemies. Like it is something that you need to actually try to do. And I thought it was such a profound, powerful. It really moved me you know, in the ways that I think Christian scripture at their best are supposed to do, um, it really touched me. So I think that's where I ended up, which is sort of like, if Christianity means that we all, if, if everybody that's Christian is a Christian because they believe that God is love and that they should love thy enemy, then, then sign me up. You know what okay, I mean? So you're kind of a philosophical, you're kind of a philosophical Christian. And rather than believing in a deity itself, it, the philosophy of, of the, if you want to call it the founder of that church is what attracted you more. And more yeah. Than and then I'm agnostic on much of the rest. In other words, I am not saying at all that I, I I'm saying could, is there a God? Um, I don't know. Um, and anybody who claims to know, I think is probably is, is not somebody I don't trust, you know? Um, <laughs> um, but um, no one's reported back from the dead and told us that there's an afterlife. Um, so, you know, you don't have that. And, and we need that on the other hand, you know, I also think that people need a kind of faith that you have to believe that something that we're doing here on earth matters. Otherwise, why write a book? <laughs> why talk on a podcast? Why do these things if you don't think it matters to some extent? And so I became very attracted, as you know, to the ideas of, um, of a very important anthropologist um, uh, who wrote a book called The Denial of Death and about how much of what we do is a kind of repression and sublimation of anxiety about death. And he even argues, I think if you go further, that most fears are fears of death. Um, and so for me, the response to that was sublimate well. Was you interested in Latin America because you want to learn Spanish or, or, or because of just because of the of what you read about the social justice, what was going on there? And I was particularly concerned with two countries, Nicaragua and El Salvador. I thought yeah. the United States government was engaging in policies with these countries that was not constructive. I still believe that. Um, I've kept my most of my anti-imperialist commitments, not all, but most. Um, and I think I've, I don't have the naivete that I had back then about the left or the Latin American left. A lot of it, I think, was a kind of shakedown, a kind of a new mafia. All the traditional or, or criticisms by people like Orwell of the left, I think, hold. Nonetheless, um, I'm not, I don't think America has much to be proud of in Central America. And I was upset about it. Um, sure. That's and I was reason. probably looking, and I was probably looking for a way to make myself, give my life meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> there we go. And, 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 and I don't you know, think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we have a long tradition in the podcast. One of the, actually, one of the first podcasts we did was with my friend Noam Chomsky, who also holds that view very strongly about Latin America. 
and the U.S. among other was things. Very influenced by Chomsky, I read I a ton of Chomsky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he brought for many Americans that the, the, the realization of what was U.S. foreign policy was doing in Latin America and, and South America. Um, yes. You went to Earlham College, which is a Quaker college. What did you study it's there? Cool. I studied peace and global studies. Ah, interesting. This is, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Claire Lehman at Quillette would no doubt have a, the, a critique of it, which I might totally, I might increasingly share, which is that, you know, it was, it's a completely woke curriculum before woke was a word or yeah. was a word used in the way it is. The gods were gone. I mean, you know, and to some extent, yeah. of course, I saw Gandhi, Martin Luther King, yeah. it was yeah. anti-progress. It was a fall from a kind of Rousseauian romantic harmony with nature through modern capitalist society. I had um, some very, um, very good, um, but nonetheless Marxist professors um, who were serious uh, thinkers. So we were also reading Foucault, we were reading Derrida, we were reading all the French thinkers. Getting all ready for the woke explosion of the- Yeah, so much of what's been happening for me never felt new. There's a sense of newness yeah. to it, but it never felt that way for me. Okay, and then and so peace and global study, and then you did a you did a master's in cultural anthropology at another kind of woke campus, UCSC, um, and um, does so. There's a lot of your discussion about local about poverty and 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 sort of understanding cultural issues when you, when you in in particular in in, in apocalypse never, which we'll get to where you basically say environmentalists aren't realizing what's good for the local population. Is it, do you think that that, that your background as a, as a, in cultural anthropology, the masters you did there is sort of influenced your, the view that you eventually came to about the, about the potential tensions between environmentalism and, and the needs of local populations? Yeah. I mean, these are, these are human beings who live in the ways that our grandparents and great grandparents lived. And they're basically being actively denied the same power plants, coal power plants, hydroelectric dams, natural gas power plants, nuclear power plants. And they're insisting that they use unreliable and expensive wind and solar, you know, future garbage energy technologies <laughs> from imported from abroad to basically create a not to create a non-functioning expensive electrical grid. I just got an email today from a guy I've known for a long time, Rich, used to write for the Wall Street Journal, talking about how now's the time for us to prevent those countries from making, with Biden's climate agenda, to prevent those countries from making the mistakes we did with things like roads and power plants. I think I find it sinister. I know those, those people want roads. I've, I've never interviewed somebody who was like, I don't want a road. Yeah, it's or hard to imagine that a road isn't a good road. thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I find well, it offensive. Um, it really bothers me. It was well, a central it, motivation for writing the book. Yeah, we'll get to the motivation. Off. And I find it interesting that 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 I, I'll, I'll be upfront now. What you said about Nietzsche and controlling your anger was interesting to me because it's it seems it, it seems pretty clear to me. And and you say it up front that in some sense you write this book. You can't. I think one can't help say out of anger. I mean in a sense of being, you're angry at what certain people are doing, demanding, promoting, and it and it influenced strongly why you wrote the book. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's. I would say it like this. Um, 
I love humanity. I really love humankind. And I and not not in the same ways I love my enemies. Um, I love yeah. humanity. I love what we do. I love who we are. And I love the natural world. I really love rain. I love forests. I really love endangered species. I really want to save them. And it makes me um, sad and it makes me feel sad and angry when I see people like me in similar class positions with similar amounts of power, politically, culturally, economically, try to keep people poorer than me down. It really does bother me. And I think it should bother everybody. Yeah, okay, um, I agree. That's I, different, I, I, I think, though, than saying, then I think it's different than the, than the hatred of civilization, which I see behind a lot of apocalyptic environmentalism. In fact, that's a great, that's sort of, that's yeah. essentially the, the beginning of your book in some sense yeah. of the, um, get to, but oh, before we get, and I, I don't want to spend the whole time on you, but I do, I think it's fascinating from me because I find you, a, uh, uh, again, I'll be upfront, quite fascinating, the, the, the juxtaposition of, of views, the background interests, and, um, and I want to, I want to, so I want to parse that in uh, a little more carefully uh, before we get to the views themselves. Um, um, I think it's worth doing. Um, you 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 moved by the two thousands to the you know and, and to a book on the death of environmentalism, and we'll 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 talk about some of the 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 verbiage you used there. You came called an eco modernist. You want and and you actually talked about running for the governor of of California. Did you ever do it? I did. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if you did or not. I did. Yeah. I lost. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that happens. But um, yeah, um, I, I will say I there have been times in my life I'm very political. And when I first moved to Arizona, I thought of running. I actually thought of running. I don't think I've ever told anyone this publicly, but uh, against John McCain at some point, because there was no Democrat that wanted to run against them. And I thought, great, I can lose. Yeah. But but it'd be a high profile campaign. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, but but I, I didn't. And and um. And one of the reasons that I, was that I, I discovered I when I seriously thought about politics, I realized that Paul, for me personally, politics is too much of a compromise. I could not say what I what I believed or what I really thought and, and be elected, I think. And, and so for me and then the question was, where could I have a bigger impact act as a popular critic or uh, with with a with a somewhat of a soapbox or or a politician? Did those issues come in your mind? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still think about it a lot. I mean, um, you know, I mean, I mean, so first of all, um, the my motivation is that California is in very, very serious trouble. I mean, I don't think most people don't know this. Um, I am happy to say that I am working on my new book, which is about the ostensibly about the homelessness crisis in San Francisco, but more broadly is about this really what I see as a kind of attack on civilization. Um, and it's coming from the radical left and it's been tolerated by the moderate left. And the right has been completely incapable of dealing with it in many cities and certainly in California. And um, I don't think that the response to it should be a right-wing response. Mm -hmm. And this is why I think we're both friends with Claire and, and we like Quillette. Um, I don't see Quillette as a conservative magazine. Yeah, I don't yeah. think Claire is a conservative person. I, um, I'm not a conservative. There are things about conservative political philosophy that I do share. I think there's an important emphasis on discipline and hard work that I believe in. 
but I am, I still consider myself a liberal. I would have called myself a progressive until probably I understood that people were using it so differently than what I mean, that <laughs> I had to stop using it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the main work, my life's main work for sure is changing and evolving consciousness to use a very California word. Um, the governor of the state has the power to fix the state and he's not doing it. So if, if, if nobody is going to actually articulate a new agenda for California and offer a chance to voters um, to vote on that, then I will. Okay. And I've, I've never hesitated to say that. If somebody else is going to offer the change that we need in our society, then I'm not interested in running. Um, I, I have no, um, I would much rather stay with my, my two dogs and wife in the Berkeley Hills and write books and, and, and write. I've got another book I want to do after this, the one I'm working on now. I mean, I've very happy life. I don't, there's a, it's a pain in the ass and I wouldn't Good. do it if I had to, I wouldn't do it if it meant not saying what I believed. I mean, that's just a, yeah. that's just, but this is fundamental. I'm not going to pander to the people of California, the voters are responsible for the nightmare on the street. I mean, we have our, our drug overdose deaths in the United States went from 17,000 in the year 2000 to 72,000 last year. And people are like dying by like two a day are, are dying of drug overdoses in San Francisco because we're so completely incapable of getting our heads around actually stepping in to prevent people from killing themselves on the streets with fentanyl and meth. I find it unconscionable. But I wouldn't. Yeah. So, I mean, if I can if I can help change the situation by just writing a book. That's I'll, I'm, I'll stop with that. Yeah. I'm I mean, I, yeah, I, that's uh, that's the reason I, I wrote the, the, my new book, The Physics of Climate Change, is mostly because. The people are going to have to make a decision what policies are are going to are going to be uh, carried yeah. out. And and uh, and so. I want to provide them the tools to at least be able to make informed decisions. And, and, and I think that's uh, um, in any case um, yeah. you, one lot, but one last thing. And then I want to jump in. Um, yeah. I, I'm intrigued by the breakthrough Institute, which you, and we don't have to, and, and by the way, um, you know, we can cut out any of the stuff that we don't talk, that, that, that you decide we don't want to talk about, but um, I'm intrigued that you created the institute and then left. And and I, I wanted to know what what the purpose of that institute was, and and was there a reason why you left? And that'll become relevant to some of our other discussions if you want to talk about it. But if you don't, it's fine too. I mean, I don't want to belabor. I'll it. only say it this way: anybody who reads what I, if you read Apocalypse Never, those are my views. Yeah. If you go read the stuff that comes out of the out of Breakthrough Institute, those are their views. The specifics of why I left, I can't imagine yeah. is important to anybody no, it, other than being full, kind of, was it philosophical or, or or I guess that's what I was wondering, whether your 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 march from, you know, the in-depth environmentalism to apocalypse never the, the 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 evolution of your views, which have changed somewhat over, it seems to me, whether that whether you whether you found yourself drifting away from the breakthrough incident or not. I would anyway. say about half of it is a chain is is a difference of opinion on nuclear power in particular, okay. and and okay. we can talk about it. But well, we'll talk about nuclear I power. I don't so. think. Yeah, we 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 are having a public disagreement right now. For anybody who oh, wants to read my columns of the book about nuclear power, and mm -hmm. I will talk. 
I will talk very openly about what my views are of nuclear power and why I disagree with many other views on nuclear power. Well, we'll get there because because okay. I agree with you, I disagree with you. So we'll, and that's in one of those areas where where there's a lot of sense to what you say, and and then some things I'm concerned about. So so uh, and you know and and although the beginning part of this was more of a sort of question and answer, I'm hoping we what I like to have these things as is discussions. So you can bring up questions too, and and uh, yeah. because it's really a discussion between people who. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, you know, I'll just be frank. I don't think the problem is that people don't understand global warming. I don't think that's a problem at all. And I actually think um, the idea that it's a problem. Um, I don't know. I just kind of question it because you have to remember the public has been told about global warming for like 30 years. I just don't think. More. Yeah. And I don't think and I don't think the handful of people who think that climate change is due to sunspots and water vapor are a significant um, obstacle. I to guess. Policy. Yeah, so, I guess. So I'm happy to have the conversation. I just I but I don't agree with it. In fact, the funny thing is, I don't even write about it anymore because I think it's so irrelevant. I spent a bunch of time in the 2000s writing about this issue. Like my book doesn't talk about Kyoto is never you, mentioned. You, you don't know. talk much about climate that will get there. It's yeah. intriguing to me because you and, and you're you're anticipating me in, in about five minutes. I want to get to this question of of because it, you you apologize before you wrote that that article apologizing for the climate scare and apocalypse never is, is sort of an extension of that or, or whatever. Um, but you really don't in the context you talk about the problems, but you really don't talk about climate change as an issue. And I want, and I want, so I do want to cover that at the very beginning, but um, in that regard, I, I really was just trying to get the sort of intellectual framework of what, what led you to an interest in nuclear power ultimately. I fell know. in love with renewables in a dumb way, like everybody did. Mm -hmm. And I even helped to advocate for a big wind farm off the coast of Cape Cod that yeah. was ultimately killed. Um, and um, when it came to my home state of California, they were wanting to, they wanted me to help advocate for solar farms in California. And it became clear that it would kill a lot of desert tortoises and that the local conservationists were against it. And at that moment, Stuart Brand uh, gave a very good TED talk. He wrote a very good book. And I had a number of other people who said, Schellenberger, you gotta take a second look at nuclear. I did, um, I changed my mind. I gave it, I've given four TED Talks on why I changed my mind and why I've been campaigning for nuclear power plants. Yeah. Centrally, as a concern around climate, though not entirely. And in fact, my motivations have changed. I now think nuclear is as important for preventing renewables as I do for reducing climate change. Because yeah, I, okay. think that, I think renewables are that terrible. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's a complicated in some ways. I mean, Palm oil saved the whales. Yeah, and I, you've got, yeah, you've got yeah, that. Palm oil saved the whales, but if you can use petroleum rather than palm oil, I think you should. And I think we, sh I think petroleum is better than palm oil. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's a, so that, so when you kind of go, my view, I wrote Apocalypse Never because I wanted to people to understand my basic view, which is that it's, you should, we want to move everybody up the energy ladder. We want to go from energy dilute fuels like wood and coal towards more energy dense fuels like natural gas and nuclear. Um, we want to we want to have more energy consumption paradoxically and less material throughput. And the two things go together in a way that's very interesting in terms of the physics of it, um, as well as frankly the culture and the politics of it. 
So I wrote Apocalypse Never to really lay out a very deep, I think a deep view of energy transitions, which I think is the right way to think about this, to think about power densities. I wanted to make power density, which is a very simple concept. It's just land divided by power output. I wanted to make it accessible to kids in high school. Um, I wanted to teach, I want this book to, I joke, it's an environmental studies textbook you know, wrapped in a bunch of stories of my travels around the world and a bunch of case studies. One quarter of the book is footnotes, you know. Um, yeah, I wanted exactly. this book to be a serious, I want it to be a serious contribution on the, on an, and a kind of physical, environmental, economic, the whole thing. Um, okay. Well, my motivations, uh, the core motivations are nature and prosperity for all. I mean, that's okay. just, that's always been there. Yeah, in fact, we'll get that. That's the last, basically, one of the last things you say. And 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 I want to, I want to, when we come back to the end, I want to talk about nature and prosperity for all because that's clearly, I think, we both share that. And the question is, um, um, is it is there a dichotomy? Uh, but you you led perfectly to the what I want to get to, which is, you you speak about why you wrote Apocalypse Never, and. And as I say, you wrote an accompanying, I don't, I think it probably, I'm not sure what, I, it may have come out before the book came out around that, that article where you apologize for, for the climate scare, which was June 2020. And I forget when Apocalypse never came out, but probably around the same time. And, and um, you say, I wrote what you say very early in, in the, in, in the preface or, or is um, I wrote Apocalypse never because the conversation about climate change and the environment has in the last few years spiraled out of control not unlike extinction rebellions beet juice fire hose and um and so and it's clear that you are there's a, just like i pushed a button a second ago where you thought i was about to attack your nuclear um it's clear well, no, that there's on a, my standing on uh, my yeah. academic credentials oh, yeah I, and I, I didn't mean that okay so okay. so just so we're clear about that i just yeah. wonder what your motivation was to get to nuclear that's but um but there's another button that clearly has been pushed. When you see people like Extinction Rebellion interfering with people's lives and, and, and claiming they're going to die. And when you talk about, of course, Alexandria uh, um, Ocasio-Cortez saying the world is, is going to end in 12 years if we do nothing. Those, that clearly pushes your buttons. And cl that's clearly as clear as the other aspects of what you just described of why, why you wrote the book, it seems to me throughout the book, one gets the feeling that what you're, what you're doing is not just apologizing, but, 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 but those you're attacking that apocalyptic view that does get you angry. Yeah. To be fair, but, neither of those things triggered me. What really bothered me was when Greta Thunberg said, I don't want you to have hope. I want you to panic that I don't want my worst enemies to panic. That's dangerous. And it is linked directly to the behaviors that we saw in the London Underground, where I saw two young men, very much like myself at the age of 17, by the way, I'll, I freely admit, I identified with them, I identified them with my children, mm -hmm. that could have been kicked and beaten to death in the London Underground. And it's only because of the civility of the Brits that they kept the crowd from just ripping those guys apart because they were upset. I was scared. I watched that and it frightened me. And I listened to Greta Thunberg and it frightened me. So, so it's actually came from a certain amount of fear. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 
She's never upset me. I've never had my buttons pushed by her in the slightest. Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, the question, yeah, okay. And I, I agree too. It's a, in a sense, yeah. because some people just spout a lot of nonsense. And at some point you just sort of, you know, that's just it. But, but the worry that I have, and this may push a button. <laughs> I, push them. It's a point. I, well, I, I thought I'd push your buttons later. I didn't think I'd push them so early, but I didn't, as I said, here's where I may, may mean to push a button. Are you worried? Uh, when I read this, I'm worried that people will lose the forest for the trees. Namely, throughout the book, I found my own, as, and I'm sympathetic to many of the things in the book, but I found that in some sense, sometimes I felt like we were attacking a straw man by attacking the, by, by sometimes focusing on people who are making ridiculous claims or fear-mongering or et cetera, whether that gets in the way of really arguing towards the, what you're trying to, the, the, the intellectual argument you're trying, trying to make about, so, you know, sort of condemning the people or their views is different than, than, um, than arguing in favor of, 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 of higher power densities, for example. So I don't condemn any people. I criticize specific things that public figures have said, just to but, be clear. I mean, I'm kind of like, do you really think $150 million of contribution from natural gas magnets to organizations trying to shut down nuclear plants that will benefit directly from shutting down a nuclear plants is not relevant? Well, I guess it's I mean, that's relevant. highly relevant. I mean, there is a huge effort, but it's Shell. It's um, we've now we now see BP working with Greenpeace in Europe to shut down nuclear plants and replace them with gas. How can that not be important part of the story? I guess it is important. Part of the story. I guess what I'm thinking, though, is when you talk when you do that, it, it, the attention. You know, especially when I think about talking to journalists, yes, what are they going to really pick up on? And so if there's a scandal, if, if, these, if, if let's just take that one. If you take the fact that 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 people are trying to basically fossil fuels or working with renewable people to try and shut down nuclear power. If that becomes the message, do you, are you worried about losing? Are you worried about losing? Let, let me just finish. Are you worried about losing the message of why you think nuclear power is so important? I mean, that's what I'm wondering, whether whether people focus on that controversy rather than focus on the on the underlying um, scientific issues that you're trying to promote. And on I just ask if you're on the okay. contrary. And let me explain why I lay out the case of why nuclear power is the best way to make electricity um, from every environmental, social and, and governance perspective. I go through in great detail. Yeah, I do. Then the question is, why, if it's so great, don't we have it? Now, the answer from the so-called nuclear industry and pro-nuclear community has been, oh, well, we did it wrong. We used water as a coolant when we should have used a chemical coolant or a metal coolant, and it's all total bullshit. The water-cooled nuclear plants we have are actually the best. They've tried all the other kinds. They sucked. They were uneconomical, complicated. The Brits did a pretty good job with carbon dioxide as the coolant gas. And their reactors are only going to last for 40, 50, maybe 60 years. Ours can go for 80 years, maybe 100 years. It's all just displaced anxiety from fear of the bomb, like 100, almost 100% of it. And also the motivate, the Malthusian motivation. Yeah. So yeah. then you go, so then what's really going on, guys? What's really going on? I go, well, it's fear of the bomb. And it's the radical left, which married itself, married Marxism to Malthusianism in a, in a nasty stew of negativity. 
um, and of anti-humanism. And, and so I say there's three things. There's Malthusianism and mm -hmm. a kind of will to status power. There's money and then there's religious motivations and they each get their own chapter because what I'm saying is that they're all three important. People kind of go, well, what are you saying? Um, um, are you saying that Tom Steyer doesn't care about the climate? No, not that. He he's, it's like saying, what are you saying? The conquistadores weren't Catholic? The conquistadores, <laughs> they, were, they believed in God more than anybody. Yeah. But they also wanted the gold. They yeah. wanted the gold. Give me the gold. So, so are those, am I, are you, are you? No, you don't, you have to get a complete picture of the conquistadores, you have to describe their piety. You also have to describe how much they loved the gold and how much they wanted to get knighted and all that bullshit, right? All the status yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. three things are important. They each got their own chapter. Now I will say in the final chapter, I kind of say softly, I don't want to make it a hard, it's not going to be a super important, strong argument. I think the spiritual motivation drives the other ones. In other words, I think that Tom Steyer is more concerned about his legacy than his money. I think that Mike Bloomberg is more concerned about this, you know, the status and the, the I'm a hero saving the planet. I think that is more important to them than the money. And I say so, but I also think they want to get paid. Let me add, actually, the interesting, it's not that the matters, it's sort of contrast between people, <laughs> but you do at some level at somewhere compare almost Bloomberg to the Koch brothers. Do you think that the Koch, the Koch brothers are also doing it? Do I'm, I'm, I've kind of feel like they're doing it for the money, but I, I don't know how, what your view on that. that. But the Koch brothers are kind of these famous libertarians. Yeah, you know, they, and they give very, a lot of money to various causes, but a so, lot so of yeah. the work, I mean, look, Lawrence, like, no, let's just agree. Nobody wakes up in the morning with malevolent intentions. Okay, okay. right, yeah, I, mean, no, I agree. No, yeah, nobody does all, that. Yeah, yeah, they all convince themselves or we all rationalize. Reason is enslaving passion. Yeah. And, and we, we all rationalize what we're doing and we think we're doing. I mean, I things. think, first of all, I don't compare them exactly. What I do is I say there's this grotesque hypocrisy of the criticisms of Exxon and Cook Brothers, even though they've given just a tiny fraction of the amount of money that Bloomberg and Steyer and these other guys have given. Um, I, w I was intrigued by that. I've always gotten the sense that the Cook Brothers get, spend a lot more money in, on a, in, in maybe not directly, but in influencing policymaking. Yeah, um, because they do those, because Greenpeace does the, does the propaganda where they go the cocktopus and the coke. Yeah, yeah. And then they, you see this, but how much money is it? Well, we went and totaled up the money. I mean, the amount of money that Exxon gave was like nothing compared to, I mean, you gotta remember, like, I mean, Bezos himself just gave like a billion dollars to these groups. Yeah. I mean, these are groups that, that each of them has an annual revenues of around a hundred million to start, and that's just so you have you have a climate apocalyptic propaganda machine that has a budget of around what one or two billion dollars a year, and then we kind of go, oh yeah, it's that dude in Cleveland who thinks it's sunspots who's preventing yeah. us from saving the world. Give me a break. I mean, give me a break. I've been doing this for twenty over twenty years now. I was one of the first obnoxious assholes to suggest that we should marginalize you know, these, these climate skeptics, that they were the main reason. We know 2009 climate legislation failed because we couldn't get Sherrod Brown in Ohio, a Democrat, to vote to make electricity expensive. That's why climate legislation didn't work. The public doesn't like these Malthusian solutions. They don't like the Paguvian taxes. 
you know, and the idea that it's somehow that we're that it's that we're to blame some conspiracy of the Koch brothers and Exxon. It's just like intellectually offensive, I find. I, and, it, and it's and it's dishonest and it's lazy because no one ever looked at the money. You look at the money and the, the differences are shocking. OK, absolutely. And now let's talk about. Um, and that's and it's a very important fact that I, I found it, it very interesting and, and surprising in some sense. I hadn't I hadn't told up the money. And it, and it leads me, you know, I was going to begin, <laughs> maybe it's, it's now 50 minutes late, but with an apology at some level, because I was going to apologize to you because in some sense, you've been an environmental activist your whole life, or not, your whole professional life. Um, I'm a particle physicist and because I'm a scientist and, and, you know, I'm interested in science and also rationality and public understanding using reason and empirical evidence. Um, and 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 I'm become you know I've been interested in climate change evolving over time as I talk about in my new book because because I was on the chairman of the board of the Bolton Atomic Scientist Board of Sponsors and that became an issue in a way which I'm sure actually probably disagree with but but at least it allowed me to get educated but I'm an, in in some sense a neophyte when it comes to these issues and you're so I'm coming into this and you've been spending your whole life and and I sort of feel apologetic in the sense that. Yeah, I've done a lot of research on on the science of climate change, but it's pretty new compared compared to where you're coming from. But nevertheless, climate change is on my mind, and and for obvious reasons. And by the way, uh, since you brought it up earlier, it's not that people. It's not that I think that people deny global warming is happening. But one one of the reasons I want to write the book Thank was. You. Just, yeah, I know. So obviously some do. I mean, yeah, Senate, there are very senators and there's a lot of the Republican Party do. But yeah. but um, and I fought against that and spoken out against that for years. But it's the issue of. If of trying to understand what are the what are the definitive predictions, what are the speculative predictions, what 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 can you trust what you can't. And that's, I think, really important, because if you don't know how if you don't know where that is on the spectrum, then you don't know what to believe, and if and, and then you sometimes don't believe any of it. So I think that was as much motivation for me to write a book. We say, hey, this is this is sound science. This is more speculative, and yeah, and you should know you should know what's, what's going to ha happen. And yeah, I think that's I important. That. Yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, I think it has to go. I think it has to go to other things, though, in the sense that let, let me give you one example. The mo one of the most controversial parts of my book and the apology. Natural disasters have declined, have deaths from natural disasters have declined 90% over hundred years. Uh -huh. There is no IPC scenario for that trend to reverse itself. I don't think people know that. I testified in front of Congress and I could see on the faces because it was on Zoom, it was really cool. Yeah. The Democrats, I could tell by their faces, they'd never heard me say before that the predictions of increased infectious disease from climate change are increases above what you would have if you didn't have climate change, they're not increases from today. In okay. other words, it's all else being equal. And of course not all else is equal, but they did not understand that. So in terms of public understanding, I think people should understand that carbon dioxide is a heat driving molecule and that water vapor plays a role in that warming and that there's these albedo effects and that we worry about tipping points. I love it. And I think that, I think that children should know that there is no scenario in the IPCC for deaths from natural disasters, that trend to reverse itself and start going up, nor do I think that kids should be, anything should be suggested to them that we won't have food, 
Okay. No, they can't have kids without mass starvation because that is bonkers and wrong and pseudoscience that we can object to for non-moral reasons, just as a completely enlightenment scientific brains. We can just go, that's wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't think it's just about the mechanism of climate change. I think it's also our ability to adapt to it. Our ability to adapt. Well, you, but you got to know what to adapt to. I think I, I, my bottom line is, you know, it's like I've had this argument about you can't get, you know, off from is. And my, I think you can go along. If you don't know what is, you can't, then ought doesn't matter. First, you got to know what is before you can decide what ought is. And so it seems to me before one talks about adaptation or one, one needs to know what, what, the, what the realistic possibilities are before. And that's, and but I think that's- here too, right? Because the is in this case is the future and there is no future. There are only multiple futures. And so you do naturally have a lot of, it's well, there are, there are futures, thing, right? there are no, no, but part of the process of science, this is a fun discussion, because this, I, I, there's one of my chapters, and I don't want to deal with my book really here, but, but where I talk okay. about, you know, I used to love, uh, my mother would sing, you know, whatever will be with me, you know, the future is not ours to see, but I'm a scientist and we predict the future, that's part of what, what science is, and there are future, and as I point out, there's futures that might be, but there's futures that are going to be, there are things that, there are things that have, or yeah. already put in the heat that's been put in the oceans is in the oceans and there's and, yeah, and yeah. that's the future and 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 so yeah you know and and one and and so one needs to know that there's some things you're just not going to affect that there's it there's some things that are going to happen yeah no and then you, you have do. to do the other side too and that's what doesn't get done in other words it goes humans are going to adapt that will happen yeah. Um, you could say it won't be good or it will be terrible or whatever, but but you can't. Th so this picture that gets presented, I mean, in terms of big prey, little prey. Yeah, I interviewed, by the way, all the main guy. I interviewed Michael Oppenheimer, who is the yeah. lead author of the IPCC chapter yeah. on sea level rise, whatever. And I was like, what do you mean by unmanageable? Which yeah. is the it sounds in the context of this Atlantic piece sounded pretty apocalyptic. And he described Katrina. And I'm yeah. like, well, Katrina was obviously terrible. And we're all, we think you should check the levees and rebuild yeah. them. But that's not like Mad Max. That's yeah. not don't have kids. Yeah, exactly. You know? and, so, and so this picture that gets painted of future humans as these helpless children, I do find it kind of connected to some of that coddling, you know, the Jonathan Haidt stuff, yeah. you know, the kind yeah. of, uh, what is yeah, it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got a bunch of safetyism in it. And I think a lot of the reaction from conservatives and Republicans who I have gotten to know much, much better now yeah. over the last, I mean, last six that's months in particular, is I think some of it, they just object to that part of it. They that coddling, that, that victimization. The mo yeah, the notion that everyone's a victim, which I mean, that's where we're in complete agreement with. And, yeah. and in some sense, that's why, I, you know, I find it's interesting. I, I, I'm saddened that we're both liberal. Our backgrounds and our politics is similar. I'm saddened that issues like com combating the notion that everyone's a victim, being in favor of free speech, that it seems to be the right that has, is co-opting those, not, or at least promoting those issues. Defending them. Yeah, defending yeah. them. And, and that's, that yeah. saddened me. But let's yeah. go back now to the, I, I think you've prepared us for, for, prepared me for where I was going to sort of, in some sense, start this discussion. I, I, I've got, a, you, you've helped preface a number of the uh, uh, number of the points very well but really it, one of the things i want to ask you at the very beginning because because you're talking about about what what climate change isn't in some sense 
I want to address what climate change is in some sense. You begin at the very beginning of your book, you say, but what then did they mean when they said climate change is an enormous crisis? If climate change isn't an existential crisis, meaning a threat to human existence, or at least to civilization, then what kind of crisis is it? You ask that question, but you don't answer it. So I want to ask you that question. Yes, I, what? I, I don't find you answer it. Maybe, okay, I missed it. I find, I find what you, you, you're, that there's a lot of emphasis on, on sort of attacking the alarmism, but what kind, how, well, all I want to say is, ask you is how big a crisis, how big an issue is climate change and, and what are your concerns? That's really maybe a less uh, provocative way of asking the question that I was going to ask you. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, um, let me see if I can, you know, because it's a funny, you know, when you sort of say, I mean, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but a question like how big of a crisis is climate change is not a scientific question. I mean, I don't, I don't mean, I'm not saying that in a mean way no, at sure. all. Sure, it's just it's a, a kind of, it's a totally almost subjective. It's, it's almost, almost a, a political question in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, so let me say, let me, let me try to do this. This is where I'm comfortable being. I think um, climate change is real. I think it's a problem all else being equal, we would want no temperature change at all, at all, cool or warm. We would want complete temperature stasis. Um, um, I think there are other environmental problems that are more important. You say that, uh -huh. it's not the most serious environmental crisis. So yeah. I guess I wanted to, what, the, what is that? so I was leading you to that. If you okay. wanted to list environmental crises, yeah. I mean, you don't have to. And I don't tend to not. I'm, I'm a, people often ask me listings. I never think hierarchically. People say, what's the worst? What's your favorite this? And I tend to say, well, there are a lot of issues. And maybe you're the same. So but if you wanted to list them. No, I, you list I them? think some ranking is important. Okay. So um, can you give me a ranking? Yeah, <clears throat> sure. So, I mean, I think that the, the biggest environmental problem and I'm going to describe what is often um, described as multiple problems, but I want to not pull them apart. I don't think I'm conflating them, but this is the problem. It is the um, continued, it is the, um, the lack of industrial prospects, particularly for Sub-Saharan Africa, but for other tropical places around the world to urbanize and industrialize so they can take the pressure off of forests, usually in the form of small scale agriculture I think that's, I think I was, I view, I thought this was the biggest environmental problem before the book came out. I'm sorry, before the pandemic. I now think it's an even bigger problem because unless the conspiracy theorists are right and the coronavirus was invented in a Chinese lab, it almost certainly uh, is a zoonotic virus that's spilled over from um, animal populations in South China or Southeast Asia. And, and those interactions are due to small scale agriculture on the forest frontier. Um, I would also throw into that the use of wood as fuel. It's not the easiest things to pull apart because if you're using wood as fuel, as I point out, if you're Bernadette in the Congo and you're yeah. using wood as fuel, then you're also engaged in small-scale agriculture that's, that's um, eating wild animals, um, which is the biggest driver still mm -hmm. of, of, not, uh, of declines of animal populations. You could say extinction threats, though I think there's too much focus on that. Yeah. Um, so that big cluster, and I kind of view, there's a funny part of this book, you know, you might remember where I kind of go and interview this, this former World Bank economist. And it's like, how do you get factories in the Congo? How do you get urbanization in the Congo? For me, that's a big problem. We need Bernadette to have a job in the city so she can leave, which she wants to do, by the way. Yeah. 
and raise her kids in the city like Suparti is. But how do you do that if there's no factories in the city? So, so my view is conservationists should be advocates of industrialization and urbanization. So that is the biggest environmental problem, I, I think, in the world. You know, does climate come in second, third, you know, around, you know, there's all sorts of other kinds of habitat loss, but, you know, I mean, it's a significant problem. It's just not the end of the world and it's not the most important environmental problem. Well, okay, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm amazed because you keep sort of anticipating. I was going to talk about Bernadette. There are various, there are various statements and claims in the book that are were fascinating for me because they're the they obviously the op, they're the opposite of what you might think of as people often claim as conventional wisdom, but they're provocative and they get you thinking about things. And I find I, that for me, so for me, that's very <laughs> useful. And as I say, sometimes at the, in the end of thinking, I didn't always agree with everything he said, but it got me thinking about things I hadn't thought about otherwise, which is, which is the purpose of, of this, right? Thank you very um, much. And, yes. um, and so, yeah, so basically you say somewhere, you know, more, more or less um, that, and, well, I don't know which one of these statements I want to start. I want to give a bunch of your statements that, that I think will shock some listeners and allow you to elaborate on them. Um, you want more, uh, I would say you would say more factories, not fewer you, you, for people who don't want to, who are worrying about buying, buying clothes that are made in sweatshops. In some sense, you're saying more sweatshops, not fewer sweatshops. So maybe elaborate on that a little bit. You already touched on it, but why don't you continue? Well, sure. So in some senses, the most important thing in this book is just to teach people that progress, that economic and environmental progress have a pattern and the pattern is that we all start out as small farmers who use wood and dung as our primary energy. And the way that we become affluent is by moving to the city, um, having fewer kids, mm. spoiling them, um, using natural gas to cook with rather than uh, wood or dung. Um, and that the way that that happens, the reason people go to cities is because they industrialize and that that industrialization consists really of two fundamental primary drivers. The first is the intensification of agriculture, fertilizer, irrigation, roads, and then the second is factories. So just a slight amendment to what you said, I would say that poor countries need more factories. I think that, um, the, what happens is that everybody, everybody industrializes the same way, by the way, you know, they all yeah. start with uh, uh, t-shirts and easy to sew textiles. And then the middle ranking was like elect electronics. And then the highest ranking is you're making Boeing jets, right? So, yeah. so I think that you move up that. Um, um, I don't think it's deterministic. I think you can deindustrialize. I think it requires policy. I don't think the markets alone can do it. I think that a lot of poor countries need World Bank funding, um, but that, you know, the physics of this, the physics of prosperity is flood control, roads, electrical systems, and that like, there's no like alternative path where you don't have those things. That's called keeping people poor. Well, you know? it also, oh. it's also, it's also in my mind, it's the physics of not only does that is that the physics of prosperity, but in, in if I'm trying to think about how eventually you're going to ameliorate or 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 at least address the problems that climate change are going to bring about, those factors are going to allow people to address them 
And so, it, and, and I'm more worried maybe than you that, 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 that they won't be able to address those aspects of climate change because those precursors won't have been implemented. So they won't have the prosperity, they won't have the roads, they won't have the, 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 the clean water, the flood control that is necessary to address it. But I think you're right. I mean, I, I tend to think that that's not just useful because it brings people up to a, the standard of living, which we all want to have, but it's also a precursor to dealing with the problems that climate change may bring about. Would you agree with that? I mean, I agree with you analytically, but the former is a categorical imperative mm -hmm. and the latter is sort of instrumental. And so I'm not totally psyched about the way that you framed that. Uh -huh. For me, I'm not, I'm not making the case for Bernadette to have modern life so that she can care about climate change. Someday. No, no. In fact, you have a great sentence. You say, um, as such, it's misleading for a mind, environmental activist to invoke people like Bernadette and the risk she faces from climate change without acknowledging that economic development is overwhelmingly what will determine her standard of living and the future of her children and grandchildren, not how much the climate changes. It's a sort of a, I wanted to, you know, I thought you were leading, I mean, you put it very well in the book, so I thought I'd, I'd read it there. Um, and, and so you, the point is that, that, in fact, it leads to a really interesting quote from Carrie Emanuel, who, who um, another person you interviewed in the book, which is which is fascinating. And who learned the book and criticized the apology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. In fact, I want to I want to get to both. So you're you know you're okay. I bring these things up for a reason. Um, he blurbed the book. He's a climate scientist, but he said something which which is as seemingly paradoxical as many of the things that you say in the book because they point out um, faulty thinking. Okay, and um, he says under. Um, Understanding this process leads to an apparently counterintuitive conclusion, quote from Kerry Emanuel. If you want to minimize carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 2070, you might want to accelerate the burning of coal in India today, said MIT climate scientist Kerry Emanuel. And he, he goes on. It doesn't sound like it makes sense. Coal is terrible for carbon. But it's by burning a lot of coal that they make themselves wealthier. And by making themselves wealthier, they have less children. The population doesn't grow and you don't have as many people burning carbon. And of course you also have, uh, you might be better off in 2070. And I add to that, it's not just that you don't have many, as many children, but you have a, you have a sense of, of you're, you have the, 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 the luxury of thinking about global issues and how to affect them instead of trying to make your, trying to survive each day. So that's, yeah. go on. No, no, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I have the same reaction to that quote, which is I put it in there because I think he's pointing to, he's, he's explaining in a really good way, some mechanisms of prosperity and, and the environment. And, and what I'm just saying is I, I, what I'm also trying to argue in the book is that we should not view lifting people out of poverty as instrumental. We should view it as an end in and of itself. And then itself. Okay. But now, since you mentioned, he, I want to, when you were talking earlier about the fact that there's no IPCC scenario that that anticipates or that include that that it anticipates the turnover back to more deaths happening yeah there it, it, i want to read what he said and give you a chance to respond to it i know you've already done probably this yeah, many yeah. times but no i'm okay. happy to okay so <clears throat> carrie Emanuel wrote and it's a fairly long quote start with his blurb of the book first i don't have it with me right now you want to read it that's fine with me carrie Emanuel. okay 
In this engaging and well-researched treatise, Michael Schellenberger exposes the environmental movement's hypocrisy in painting climate change in apocalyptic terms while steadfastly working against nuclear power, the one green energy source whose implementation could feasibly avoid the worst climate risks. Okay, good. Okay, great. He writes now you here, can read the now you can read the the mean one. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it's mean, but I think the point is is well, you can we'll discuss yeah. what it's mean. Let's assume uh, so. Let's assume he's talking about the 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 issue of of the fact that you claim that climate change is not making natural disasters worse, and point out that a lot of you know, basically that the technology and awareness is 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 saving people a lot more effectively. And okay, so he said, let's assume that Schellenberger is defining natural disasters as deaths from events that could conceivably have a climate connection, such as floods, droughts, hurricanes. In the period between 1900 and 2020, global deaths from these disasters have declined steeply. There's little question about why this has happened. It is immensely gratifying effects of greatly improved warnings, evacuations, and resilience. For example, in Bangladesh, where a single storm killed as many as 500,000 people in 1970, the government and non-governmental organizations have built many emergency evacuation shelters that have saved arguably millions of people in subsequent cyclones that have been meteorologically as bad or worse. So, I mean, so he's, that's we're, more or less- We're all one that, now, we're at this yeah, point. We're all, we're all one. one, yeah, okay, exactly. If, okay, if there is a climate change signal, it would appear as a lessening of this happy trend toward decreased fatalities. But it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to extract such a signal. We do not know from this data whether climate change is decreasing the rate of decline of deaths from natural disasters or not. If, on the other hand, we look at economic damage normalized by world domestic product, the signal is equally clear, but in the other direction, damages from weather-related natural disasters have been increasing greatly. He points out one could plausibly argue that this is because of a global migration towards risky uh, coastal regions. So it's not unequivocal that this increase is owing to climate change. But his point is that that one we don't have the data to say that that um, that climate change is not is decreasing or not decreasing the rate of decline of deaths. And the final thing he says is the cleanest way to look at climate effects on natural phenomena is to look at the phenomena themselves. Here, there's strong and mounting evidence that climate change is increasing precipitation extremes, floods and droughts conditions for wildfires and the incidence of strong hurricanes. So his point, the point he's saying is, yeah, you're right. Technology and awareness are, are saving people and that's good, but you can't use that, but you can't extract positively or negatively a signal of climate change from that. And that, and that there are other signals of climate change that, that, that do appear to be getting worse. So that's, so I'll okay. throw out all of that and give you yeah, a yeah, answer. Yeah. I mean, let's unpack that. All right. So yeah, let's unpack it. Just, yeah, I mean, the first thing is, he notice he does not say, he does not predict that climate change is going to reverse the longstanding trend of declining deaths from natural disasters. No, absolutely. Um, second thing is, he is saying the same thing that I mentioned before about infectious diseases, which he's saying, we don't know. It may be that all else being equal, more people are dying from extreme weather events um, than would be dying had there been no climate change. That's what he's saying, okay? Yeah. Um, um, so the point is, okay, so um, sure, 
but it's been massively outweighed by the massive decline. So you kind of go, who cares? I mean, it, it, honestly, it's like an irrelevant point. It's like a non sequitur. Um, all else being equal, I don't want any temperature change, but all else no, is not equal. People no, need to so use fossil fuel. Well, okay, so, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, but the so, question is, are you conflating past and future here? So you're right, up to now, I think it's fair to say that obviously it's clear what the trend is, that, that lives are being saved rather than yeah. destroyed. But, but we don't know. And what we do know is that unambiguously, the effects of climate change are going to get worse than they have been so far. I mean, that there will be manifestation. And so therefore, we don't know. It's, I think we both agree. Saying we don't know is fine, but, but saying that it's been massively outweighed in the past is not, it does not imply it's gonna be massively outweighed in the future is all, at least it's not applied. So that's the, yeah. I, I, I am as confident about that as I am about any predictions of carbon dioxide's role in causing warming. I'll put it that way. Um, um, I, in other words, <clears throat> I live in Berkeley, California. I live in the hills. Yes. The mm -hmm. water management from rainfall is intense. Yeah. There is no scenario where I'm going to lose my flood management system mm -hmm. because of a few more inches of rainfall a year. And it is a few more inches, by the way. In, yeah. in, but let's say it's like several feet. We can st we're still going to build. I mean, they live underwater in the Netherlands, right? They live under well, sea level. In Berkeley, in the Netherlands, I will, we'll get to. I'm, I'm not yeah. as optimistic and in as you are. Case, and in Bernadette's case in sub-Saharan Africa, what matters is that she have a flood control system. Yeah, that's absolutely. The main event. That, that okay. would, that, that, that's okay. So, but then, but then I think there is some... I, there, there is some other things that, that, that Carrie says that I don't think are um, as, as um, accurate or as helpful as they could be. And what I mean is he switches from natural disasters to extreme weather events. And let me point to some pretty bad behavior around my book. People would say Schellenberger is wrong when he says that natural disasters aren't getting worse. These extreme weather events we can find we can find more extreme weather events. Oh, very clever. Most people they think that the claim about extreme weather events and the claims about natural disasters are the same. And then when I pointed out that natural disasters has a definition by the IPCC, I was accused repeatedly of being some kind of a troll, like of being like like using some technicality. No, the IPCC defines disasters in two ways: deaths property damage. The record is clear. Deaths have gone down. They're continuing to go down. This is a record low year for deaths and property damage. And this is the other part. I don't think Kerry represented the science particularly well in that those sentences, the IPCC in its extreme is report on extreme weather events. And in many peer review, it is entirely explained by more wealth and harm's way. This idea where you kind of go, well, it may have been that there's some more coastal development that could mm -hmm. explain the higher mm -hmm. cost of hurricanes. May have been. We're talking dozens of studies reviewed by the IPCC. It's because there is more wealth in harm's way. Now, look, in the future, I will, I'm actually 100% on board with the extreme, I mean, the extreme weather stuff. I mean, there's some science that's you know challenging, but it seems like they're doing pretty good. I don't have any reason to think it's bad. Um, so I kind of go if what if if we're if the disagreement at the end of the day I don't really think it is one but I think what's really happening is well I mean let me get to before I wait what's happening is I extreme weather climate change is probably going to make extreme weather events more extreme hundred yeah. percent it's probably going to make I cite though hurricanes might become more 
severe, but according to the US government, they'll also probably become less frequent. That's the current science. Mm -hmm. um, but that like, it's just so outweighed by all the things that determine whether people die and whether property gets well, damaged. Yeah, yeah but uh, claim it. good, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this discussion. So good. I hope you are, good. but, but, um, but here's my problem with this in some sense. And we're, I'm jumping all over from where I was. No, no, it's okay. I did want to have a trajectory where we're heading it, but, yeah. but my concern is, is burn and it, just like your concern about burning and having flood control. Yes, we can manage the harm, the, 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 the more wealth and harm's way. We can manage Berkeley. We can, Holland can manage, but I, but, but we are, unambiguously going to have problems. And I am, and, and, and I do want to get to sea level rise in a way, because as you can, if you looked at my book, you can see I was sort of motivated by South Vietnam and in, in, in the Mekong Delta. But, but so we can handle that, we can ameliorate that, we can moderate that, but, but much of the world, which is poor, cannot right now. Because they're poor. I, exactly, hold on, let me finish. Because, it's because they're poor, but it's not clear to me that realistically, in a time frame before there may be severe problems, there's severe problems will, now. I they know have that, severe problems now. Bernadette floods now. I know she floods now, but I'm, okay. But there are going to be, you know, as 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 I just point out from a new study of of, of global topography, a reanalysis of satellite maps, much more of the world is less than one meter above sea level now than it was before, and and you're talking up to depending upon the climate scenarios and how much the carbon emissions are you're talking up to 600 million people will be below sea level by either either a high tide by 2050 or 2100 if they and stay I, where they are what if they stay where they are if they exactly if they stay where they are the, but the history but, of the last 120 years has been of migration away from those vulnerable yeah. areas so uh, okay that's right but that's right. And we can, but, but there's a difference of migration for 600 million people versus migration of several hundred thousand or several million. For example, uh, take South Vietnam, which, which, I, which I've studied a great depth now, and, and, and the fact that most, almost all of South Vietnam is less than one meter above sea level. The Mekong Delta, which is the richest rice producing region in the world, right now holds back the China Sea over because it, it, there's a large diagonal tide. Um, because of its strength and because of its height. And, it, and if that area becomes brackish, that rice producing area goes, the area, the river which has the most freshwater fish in the world, more than all the freshwater fish uh, caught in the United States, is, is potentially subject to, uh, to, to a problem if there's one meter of sea level rise, which is the moderate prediction by 2100. And so the question is, will we have the capability of bringing out of poverty and, 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 and enough economic prosperity to have the people in South Vietnam or the people in Bangladesh feel the same way in 2100 that you feel now in Berkeley saying, I know we're gonna be able to deal with it. Well, they could, I mean, the, the obstacle to that is industrialization and urbanization in Vietnam. So that those people can move from the coasts over time there's no coast. It's a whole country. There's no coast. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll move inland. Well, no, they moved to North Vietnam. What was that? Moved to, to North Vietnam. I mean, by the way, the median estimate is 0.6 meters. Just so we're all clear. I know 0.6 meters is the mean yeah. estimate. And and the, I mean, and, and look, and, I mean, I, I kind of go. What do you want me to say? All else being equal, 
I don't want the seas to rise. I don't know. I guess that's why I campaign for nuclear. But I also kind of go this picture of the Vietnamese as kind of helpless. Oh, my God. No, 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 not helpless. But 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 the point is that it's easy to say that an entire that between 40, 14 million and 60 million people can just move. Um, But I guess what I'm concerned about is this. What I'm trying to say is that the the same problems that have been addressed in the developed world by and and and, and or by technology that have largely reduced deaths and reduced property damage in certain places, um, we were we require you're requiring the part of the problem of climate change is that it's going to disproportionately affect people in the world in places which are right now the least capable of addressing of dealing with the problem. It, you know, climate change, the worst heat level, the worst is going to be in the middle tropical latitudes and the equatorial regions where largely the poorest countries are, yeah. where largely the people are most dependent on agriculture, which is going to be more impacted in those regions than it in negatively yeah. than it will in in the in Canada, where they may have a bigger rice bowl or bigger wheat wheat, wheat growing area. So it's going to disproportionately affect those places that are least able to to deal with it. And so yeah. if I had to suggest, I would suggest the curve is likely to turn over. And that's part of my problems with part of my concern about climate change in the long run. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So the first thing is when you kind of go, the poor will be most impacted by environmental change. Well, you can say it about all kinds of change. Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and I also think we should stop thinking of change as bad um, in every instance. Well, I, I mean, agree. Yeah, I mean, so so most of the African Americans in the San Francisco Bay Area, so if I'm writing about over now, they came. They were their 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 parents and grandparents, not their parents, sorry, their grandparents or great grandparents were sharecroppers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I could see environmentalists today, if that was still a situation, being like, "Oh, well, we couldn't possibly displace those sharecroppers. Climate change is going to negatively affect their crops." No, the problem is that they're sharecroppers and they don't want to be. I mean, this idea we want to keep them sharecroppers or keep them in agriculture progress is all about not being a farmer anymore. There's 1% of the workforce in the United yeah. States are farmers. So yeah, the absolutely. problem, the biggest problem in Vietnam is there's too many farmers. Well, and, and going back to the areas, I mean, Guatemala, we've already have climate, the, and this is part of the problem. We have climate refugees already from Guatemala, right? I mean, they're people who cannot, they're small subsistence farms are no longer providing them subsistence, okay? So they're doing what? People do. They migrate to cities, or they try and migrate north, and then you have this, this, so, this, quote unquote, problem of immigration, and you have all of these tensions that come yeah. from it, and you have so you have socio-political tensions that arise. I, just, I know that part of the world, and I'm sorry, but the impact of cheap corn dumped on those countries by overproductive agriculture in rich countries is such a bigger factor for displacing people from their land. That's my first reaction. And my second reaction is I don't cry for small farmers. My family farm, my mom cried. She did. My mom cried when the family lost the farm. And I was kind of like, I don't know, mom. I mean, I loved going there. It's very romantic. I love that. I love the food and whatever. But I kind of go, you want me to cry about poor farmers who have to go to the city? The problem is that they don't have good jobs in the city. Exactly. The I mean, the point is, I cry. Look, yeah. I don't cry for. I'm not sure I cry for anyone, but I'm concerned. I mean, this is people having to change their life, have their whole lifestyle, their whole, their whole 
health, welfare of their family depends upon them being able to successfully move and find a productive and environment. And, that, and so I worry about years. that. That's how it's been for 250 years. And you kind of go, climate's going to make 600 million people move. Modern industrial capitalism made billions of people move over the last 250 years. So the selective concern about environmental change, I find very suspicious. The biggest dynamics are the displacement of small, the biggest, arguably the most important thing that's ever occurred is that we went from 100% farming I'm exaggerating. Yeah, 90% yeah. farmers to 1% farmers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single one of those people that lost their farming jobs somehow ended up richer and freer. And I would argue more self-fulfilled. I think Suparti, the Indonesian factory worker yeah. I put up on the book, is in a better situation than Bernadette. That's not because we dealt with climate change. It's because Suparti left the farm. And so, so stop. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm going to say this nicely. Please, if you're going to be concerned about climate change, do so in that context exactly, with some but- recognition that displacement and dislocation and moving is what we've been doing for 250 years. Yeah, but let, let me. Okay, I'm going to keep pushing back here. Uh, I'm going to my 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 role to some extent is as devil's advocate because I want you to elaborate on, on the. It's great. Okay, no good. As long as you're having no fun, I am. Okay. Um, Yes, capitalism has has maybe I don't know the numbers. I, I so I'm willing to accept that billions of people, yeah, I mean billions of people have moved to cities over the last 500, 400 years um, because of the of capitalism and and technology. Okay, but the difference is they've moved to cities because of, I mean, in some sense, it's been a positive driver. The opportunities, the wealth, all of that is there, and it and and I guess I see a somewhat a, a difference. Because now it's a negative driver. It's not that there's more opportunities. Hold on, let me finish what I was going to say. It's and I'm you always accused of interrupting. So, but anyway, it's, um, it's not that there are suddenly going to become necessarily more opportunities for them elsewhere, unless we do something in advance. Unless fortune favors the prepared mind, which I'm all in favor of. But unless we do something for them in advance, there aren't going to be those opportunities. They're going to be driven away from where they can't be but it's not clear they're gonna be easy places for where they can be. So I think it's a fundamental difference. One was a positive driver of capitalism and, and I come to view net capital, climate change or and, and associate environmental impacts as kind of being a negative driver. People yeah, being but, pushed but out. Lawrence, so first of all, I have two objections. Okay. My first objection is philosophical. Mm-hmm. Who cares if it was a negative driver? Who cares if Suparti had to leave the farm because she's poor? Who cares? Nobody cares. What matters is that Suparti have a better future. Yeah, so, so we got to provide those. Yeah, but that's what matters, not that's whether the driver You're right. was okay, but, negative. But, yeah, no, but hold, but look at, but there's, you can't decouple it. The point well, is, let me, hold let me, on. Let me make my second point because you, I let you talk and then you okay. said, and I said I had two points. So okay. I made the first okay. one philosophical. Okay. The second one is, your history is terrible. Do you know the history of industrial capitalism? Marx writes about the enclosures of Britain where they actually kicked the poor people off the land. I lived in Brazil in the Amazon where that was all I studied, kicking people off land. It was all totally negative. What about environment? Is it just climate? Environment? The Dust Bowl, this is a result of bad farming technologies. Mm-hmm. We have all sorts of horribly negative things. What about like the persecution of the Jews in Europe? 
I mean, I don't think I think that I think the Jews who escaped Europe before the before the Holocaust would say that the negative driver of anti-Semitism is something they're grateful for because it got them the hell out of Europe. I'm alive so now idea, because of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this idea, first of all, this idea that we can kind of go back and decide what kind of dis, like, that some dislocation is good and some is bad because of something, something. It doesn't make any sense. What I'm arguing is that with the Industrial Revolution, there was an Industrial Revolution going on. There was a there and whether people were and there's zero doubt that people that the history that you're talking about is true, that people were 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 removed from where they were going to be and they were put in places they didn't want to be and all of that. That's true. That's yeah. human history. I guess ugly. I guess we're we're qualitatively or maybe quantitatively, we may disagree is my concern that I, just like the, 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 we are in complete agreement that what's important is not the oppression of the past or the, or the problems of the present, but the opportunities of the future that we provide people. I think we're completely agree, in agreement there. Yeah. I'm more concerned than you are perhaps that climate change the pace of climate change in poor areas of the world will be such that people will not have the opportunities to find a, a, fact, a factory job as, 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 as the person in your, in your, in your book, or, or uh, to that, that there will be much more violent displacement without opportunity as a result of climate change than maybe you are concerned. I'm saying, I'm gonna respond, I have two things to say. My first is I am deeply suspicious of your fear. And the reason I'm deeply suspicious okay. of it is because it is so selective. Why are you more concerned about climate change's impact on Bernadette than you are about all the other things that are keeping her in poverty? And that includes the lack of good industrial jobs in the city, which is my second point here, which is sort of like, um, if climate change ends up displacing Bernadette and she's got a good job in the city, then who cares? You shouldn't care because according to your own criteria, you just said you wouldn't. So, so part of me goes, the main event is getting Bernadette, the infrastructure, the irrigation and her husband and their family, the communities, fertilizer, the roads, all that. And the people who are denying her that is the World Bank, which is funded with our money and which is using climate change to deny Bernadette the things that you recognize she needs to be safe from climate change. I find that sinister. I find yeah. it completely sinister. And, and, and that is, you got it. That is a big reason I wrote this book. I find the selective concern for climate refugees. I'm sorry, I just, it, the words piss me off. Why are you only concerned about climate refugees? What about all the other refugees? You know, are we only getting, oh, but you're a climate refugee. And so what, they have a sort of spiritual essence to them oh, because they're, I, if I you're mean, talk, come on. No, I mean, I just talk, to go, hold on, you don't, Michael. You don't, there's so much going on in Guatemala right now, Lawrence. There's yeah, sure. lords that control it. Those wars never went away in some ways. You're dealing with just heinous, heinous situations. Of course. Go, I'm worried about climate change on those no, people. You like, listen to Listen you know, to my, my discussion with Noam Chomsky, where we talk about those other heinous things that are going on. They're all going on. But the point, I, I guess it, the point is, if you're going to talk about climate change, you're going to talk about climate refugees. I'm not going to talk about U.S. foreign policy in, 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 Guata, in Guatemala or Haiti or, or Brazil or, you know, so, I mean, there are lots of problems in the world. You're absolutely right. But if one's going to talk about climate change, one might as well talk about the impacts of climate change. That, that's not and, how I, that's not how I have 
I, that's not how I am trying to be a climate activist. I'm trying to be a climate activist in a different way than Yeah, that. sure. And I well, think it's more scientifically accurate and is more ethical than the ways in which this concerns have been expressed in a highly selective way and then used to deprive people of the very foundations that they need of economic development. That's my- I realize that. Your, and your argument is essentially that, that you, as you say, and, and you know, something I was gonna talk about earlier, when I talk about the, when I, when I early in, 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 your, in your history and your discussions, you say environmentalism cannot deal with climate change, you should, should be allowed to die. Uh, we should abandon focus on nature protection and more on technological innovation. Um, uh, again, I'm not sure they're mutual. In fact, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think you can do both at the same time, uh, which is very important. I think that I think that technology is an opportunity to address the problems of the poor as well as the problems of the environment, including climate change, and that you can do them together. So th there's not this false dichotomy. You don't have to. I'm the last person that creates a false dichotomy about those things. My book goes into great detail about it. Yeah, no, I know, but, I, but I'm saying so, so, but what you're saying is that we should remove the focus on, on nature protection and instead focus on technological innovation because it's going gonna, it's gonna to allow Bernadette and others. Uh, well, I mean, but that's not from Apocalypse Never, what you just read. Yeah, that um, isn't. That isn't. I know it's from no, something else. I mean, Apocalypse Never, my, my focus has shifted. Okay. From a, what I think was an earlier immature and naive fetishization ah, okay. of innovation and this focus to energy transitions and power density as a much deeper physical essential nature of environmental change and progress. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah, that was early on. But you, you so one area where you haven't changed a lot, I think, is you argue against what is called sustainable development. Um, instead, well, then, yeah. you want to. Instead, you say you want to. Let me finish. Yeah. You want to shrink the human footprint, um, uh, and economic development is necessary to preserve the environment. So you want to, instead of considering what people call sustainable development, you want to have more with less. In some sense, you want to go elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, so we don't want to. We don't want to use whales sustainably. We want to stop yeah. using whales. How do we do that? Well, we did it twice. The first time we replaced whale oil with petroleum. The second time we replaced it with palm oil, mostly from the Congo. Um, substitution is the main event. Um, over time, you're looking at dematerialization using less natural resource, less material throughput. That actually requires more energy and more technology, more know-how and more progress. So sustainable development is basically a propaganda word. It was invented by Malthusian anti-human development activists in the 1990s. It's a very clear trajectory starting can, you know, from the late just, 60s. Can I just parse, I mean, you yep. say it a lot and I just wanna, there's, a, there's an emotionally charged language you use that at least it's worth par unpacking. Malthusian and anti-humanist, you equate. Yes. And, you, and, and, and it's, it grates on me a little bit to have people being called anti-humanist. So, so at least I want you, can you elaborate on why you put those two words together? Sure. So um, we're talking about a British economist named Thomas Malthus, who yeah. in the late um, 18th century became absolutely enraged at the idea promoted by Enlightenment humanists 
um, namely Condorcet um, and Godwin, that all humans could achieve prosperity. This totally, this drove Malthus crazy. He hated the idea that everybody would be prosperous. And he spent his entire life creating an ideology to explain why that couldn't and be the case and why we shouldn't try. And, and, and I kind of describe how that's continued over the last couple hundred years. It's anti-humanist in that what I'm saying by humanist is what the, the enlightenment thinkers meant, which is that um, humans contain the potential for universal emancipation and freedom. And that really is a consequence of technology and prosperity and that everybody gets it. There's no racism, there's no nationalism, everybody gets it. And the people who countered it had an anti-humanistic view, which is that some people were doomed to starve to death and some people were doomed to die young and die poor. Okay, but and that was Malthus's view. Well, again, but I'm worried about attacking the straw man. So you're attacking Malthus, but, the, but, there, but, but I think it's unfair to argue that people who would suggest there are physical limitations on the human condition to argue that they would not also want everyone to be prosperous. I mean, there you go, you say it's a straw man and then you just go and suggest that there's some group of people who have been denying physical limits. No, 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 yeah, but I, I mean, I, look, there are- Everybody uh, recognizes physical limits. We all had to eat. So, the, so, morning, so, so. there's a, there are, so I'm in, in a sense, I guess I might, I'm, sen I'm sensitive to the Malth Malthusian argument about population that it will be very different. It'll be much more difficult to have a world in which everyone has the, the, the standard of living that you and I do with a much larger population. Now, of course, technology, the, the old limits to growth argument, which I read when influenced me when I was a kid, I'll, I'll admit, strongly influenced me at the time. Sure, it didn't take into account the very fact that technology can change. So what was a limit before is not a limit now because technology can do a lot more with a lot less. And you talk about it in your book and, and it's absolutely true. And it's one of the reasons I like being a scientist is finding ways to do to improve the human condition. But nevertheless, it will be one of the reasons I am in favor of population management is that it will be difficult, especially in poorer regions, to try and, and it'll be progressively more difficult to achieve the goal of, of nature and prosperity with a much larger population. Would you agree? Um, in some ways it can make it easier depending it, on the population is and what you do. I mean, so let me just, let's just back up again. So Malthus, um, Godwin and Condorcet say, technology is gonna allow everybody to be free because we can all get rich through technology. Malthus says, okay. absolutely not. And the reason is we're gonna have too many kids, more kids than we can feed. And Godwin and Condorcet said, said, that's silly. We'll just use birth control. And Malthus's response was not that we won't use birth control. And he wasn't concerned trolling about how it might not work to have birth control. He was saying we should not use birth control because that would violate God's will. Okay, so, so watch the move that gets made. You go into the after World War II period and the Malthusians say, we should not let poor countries develop because they'll, they'll, they'll have, you know, we shouldn't let them get rich. They're gonna have too many kids. We should deprive them of the technologies we need. They succeeded with the World Bank as we've described. Um, and then everybody would say, well, why can't we just help them flood control hydroelectric dams and roads and fertilizer? Like, why won't that work? And they said, because that would be, that would violate nature's will. 
that would violate the natural systems and the natural orders. And they constructed an entire science called earth systems. And, and they basically constructed a whole ideology designed to show why poor countries couldn't do what rich countries did to get rich. And then they said, we've determined scientifically that if you try to get rich like we got rich, some kind of cataclysm will happen. And there will be some mass, actually the way you avoid starvation is with irrigation, fertilizer, and tractors and roads. So why would you suggest that those things would actually make more starvation? The, you gotta remember, well, okay, they, so they literally said, they said, they said, the metaphor that they used was of a lifeboat and of them on the inside and poor people on the outside. And the metaphor was not to reach over the lifeboat to pull them in. It was to kick them out, keep them out of the lifeboat. So my objection, just so we're, my ethical commitment, do whatever the fuck you gotta do to get everybody in the lifeboat. That's it, it starts from that. And if you're going, no, no, as a scientist, I'm gonna calculate whether our boat can hold all those people and you're not offering to get the fuck out of the boat, then I actually, it does piss me off. I think it's an abuse of scientific yeah, power. Yeah, but I think it's- I think it's I think an, No, no, but I think it's an abuse of scientific power, a huge abuse for rich people in the, in the rich world to suggest that they've done science showing that poor people can't develop. I find okay. it a complete stain on the natural physical sciences over the last 50 years. The biggest journal, biggest scientific journal in the United States is a Malthusian journal. Our biggest newspaper is a Malthusian newspaper. It's deep. I think it's okay. very dark. Um, and it's very, as the kids would say these days, it's very problematic, you know? Okay, okay. But look, I guess, yeah, everything you said, the, your concern and your anger and your moral yeah. objection is something, how could one disagree with? On the other hand, it seems to me, that this is an example of a painting everyone with the same brush is in no. some sense, hold on. It's some sense it's once again, I kind of think of it as like looking at a straw man. Absolutely. If people make that philosophical jump that people in, you know, that, that, that people should be kept out of the lifeboat. Absolutely. But, but, but you don't have to make that jump and yet you can still, let's take the Carrie Emanuel quote again. It's a perfect example. Here's someone who's saying, let's, you know, you could say burn more coal in, um, in India is a way to reduce carbon, okay? Because what you're doing ultimately is you're increasing the quality of life, education, et cetera, of those people. And it's well known, and I once wrote an article, Educate Women, Save the World. It's well known that if people are, are wealthier and more educated, women in particular will have fewer children, which will put less pressure on them and their families. So, so what we're so here's an example of, of saying, look, there are there are resource limits within a certain location, and one of the ways, one of the ways to improve, to bring people into the lifeboat is to help ensure that they eventually have a, a lifestyle, but for in which they will not have as many children. So, you, you know, you don't I, have I, to. I, I, let me two objections. First, okay, you always have to I remain. I, that's all right. <laughs> I remain uncomfortable with the instrumental way in which we're framing that issue of prosperity. For me, it's fundamental human right. It's a fundamental human right that people sure. have, and I'm uncomfortable describing it in a strictly instrumental way. Oh, okay. The second part is is that this dynamic of wealth creation has been understood since Adam Smith. I mean. Yeah. 
And this dynamic of agricultural intensification and industrialization had been understood for over 150 years, 175 years by the time the Malthusians post-World War II constructed what we call environmentalism as this elaborate effort now to basically control energy and food policies in poor countries. And so it's not, it's an active denial of the basis of how we all got wealthy. They're actively denying the role of energy, actively yeah. denying the role of, of, you know, and so, and, and where is it, you kind of go, you're uncomfortable with me challenging the motivations, but you have to ask, what is the motivation of a person in the rich world seeking to deny the central role of these basic primary drivers of modernization? Why are they doing that? What well, is going on? Well, it's, it's absolutely, look, I agree with you there completely. I, this argument that somehow, hey, look, we've put all this carbon in the atmosphere, but if, if you want the developed world, if you want China and India to do it, it's going to get much worse, so we can't let them do it, okay? This argument that's, and as I say in my book, you know, my parents had a little store when I was, was a kid, and there was a sign up there, they used to sell little tchotchkes, and it said, if you broke it, if you break it, it's yours. And we broke it. So we have no right in some sense to say we have to take ownership of the problem. But and if that means, hold on, hold on. It, it, that means, well, it's it, we've created uh, the industrialized world has helped create what is now uh, uh, the, the human induced climate change that is going to impact people in different ways in a thousand different ways in a thousand yeah. different places. But it's going to. What we need to do in some sense to me, in my view, we have the ethical and moral obligation, if you want to use both those terms, to say we are responsible for the situation that's going to potentially exacerbate the problems of people who do not, who are, who are poor in poor countries. And therefore, yes. we have a moral and ethical obligation to do what we can to bring them out of poverty so that so that they're less susceptible to the problems of climate change. Yeah, I mean, we're all agree that human rights, that humans have a, a dignity and everyone should have the ability to, to have a life that they, of human dignity. I, okay, you and I agree with that. That's, yeah. that's humanism, right, I guess? And yes, and yes, so, that is what I mean by humanism. Okay, so what I guess I'm saying, as I said before, is that, is that um, that part of the issue of climate change is recognizing that there are that what we need to do uh, climate change can help achieve what you are discussing climate change can help achieve a goal that we both have but one that you're espousing extremely vocally which is the need to bring people out of poverty the need to to need to develop the undeveloped the, the undeveloped world the need to to, to develop yeah, I guess I'd say develop the undeveloped world. Lawrence, you keep, it seems like you keep wanting, in other words, you keep wanting to make it instrumental and I don't I understand. I don't understand why, because the categorical imperative is much, in terms of persuasion, if you're just simply trying to persuade people, it's much more persuasive to convince people that we just have a moral obligation for everybody we, to achieve prosperity. Do, but, the, but I guess my point is there are gonna be problems that wouldn't be present that are gonna make it yeah. much worse. 
and, and we therefore have a yes and therefore we have an obligation to deal with those that's problems my point it's, yeah the, it's the fact that yeah. climate change is creating those problems that wouldn't be there otherwise for you know by the way are you okay to go two and a half hours um are you yeah okay? if i could get a, if i could you if i could get a glass of water right now sure you want to take a break why don't you take a, yeah is, all right man thank Woo! thank you okay thank you um that was, this is fun lawrence i'm glad that you're comfortable with a good argument oh yeah 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 don't know no, absolutely and I think, uh, yeah, and it's and the argument is met because I think we're coming from more or less the same place, which is even better. Um, and 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 we, I'm glad we you totally are. totally agreed there wouldn't be anything to talk about. Yeah, and I'm glad you agree. I didn't want you to feel I brought you on to sort of uh, you know uh, um, ambush you or in any way because I certainly didn't. I want to give. I want to allow this discussion to take place because it's really important for people to hear. Here, I think. Thank anyway, you. and no, um, and and just so you're aware where I want to go. I mean. I had a, a, a narrative, but we're going all over the place, which is fine. There are two really interesting things you bring up that I want to talk about, specifics that are kind of take us away from where we were before. And then I think, given the time, what I'd like to do is I want to talk about, I want to focus on nuclear power, because I think it would be a disservice not to do that. And then I want to end talking a little bit more about, about climate change considerations from where I'm coming from, okay? And then, and then end on sort of nature and prosperity for all, just so you're aware, sure. if we can get there. Um, okay. Before we go elsewhere, I want to I want to make a small digression because there's some things that I, uh, again, surprised me, and I always love being surprised. I love being wrong, um, even though it happens so rarely. Do you no, know? Yeah. Do no, you I do really? as a scientist. No, as a scientist, I love finding my, my conventional wisdom is wrong, that my common sense is wrong, that my presumption of something is wrong. I think it's but right away, right away, or does it take you a little while? It depends what it is. I mean, obviously, if it's some, if it depends how emotionally involved I am, I guess. Um, but I think it's what it's the reason I like being a scientist because it's taught me to enjoy being wrong. It's one of the values of science. It is, it is, and it's probably the one of the greatest values of science is that is it not knowing is important and being wrong and being willing to be wrong is vitally important. And I think those are the two greatest misconceptions and greatest utilities that science ha one of the reasons i popularize science is because i want to try and help people recognize those two facts that's all so I would anyway, say one of the for me for me i i the experience of being wrong is always totally unpleasant and and i don't like it and uh, interesting being wrong and figuring out how i was wrong and actually speaking about how i was wrong has been maybe the most important Part of some one of the most important parts of my own intellectual life um, on that, but I would say it differently. It's it's like it's like emotional pain. At the time, you don't want it; it's terrible. But over time, you're like, I'm really glad she broke up with me. You know? Yeah, yeah, okay. Or I'm really glad I was fired. I'm so glad I was fired. Yeah, no, I've had to deal with yeah, and those human emotional things being wrong or having, and I've had to deal with that a lot. Um, I guess you know why that's for me. What's what's been so great about being a scientist is. 99% of what I do is wrong or what I've done in my career is wrong. Not in the sense that the mathematics is wrong. Just nature wasn't smart enough to take, to adopt what I thought, the, you know, what I thought would be a solution of a problem. And, um, and so that becomes kind of challenged because you, you're used to saying, okay, well, this is wrong. What, you know, anyway. And, and so when experiments are done in science, as a, you know, one of the biggest problems as a particle physicist is that We've been right for the last 50 years is that we have the standard model that's this 
impenetrable and we want it to be wrong and we want the experiment to show us what we're thinking is wrong because only then we'll, we'll know where to go but in a personal yeah. sense absolutely uh absolutely yeah, in politics, you know when you have your scientific brain on i find you can be like if you can you can be like i hypothesize and then oh my gosh i was wrong about that yeah. that's one thing but i think when it's like my identity and my core paradigm of saving nature or whatever it is yeah. was wrong or I was wrong about, I don't know, like helping the poor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I'm discovering, turns out there's, you know, unintended consequences of helping the poor. Yeah, sure. It's unintended. You know? I want to talk about one unintended consequence here right now, but yeah. you're absolutely, but I've said this and my, my wife disagrees with me about what I said. I've said that my hope in, for a college education, and I don't think everyone should go to, that's another thing. I think most kids go to college without having any idea what they want to do. And it, it's just four years of country club. But, but uh, um, what I hope is that at some point in their education, they'll have some idea that's at the core of their being, something that's so fundamental to what, how, how they view themselves as their very existence, that to be proved wrong, because that's liberating. If you haven't had that experience, then then you can't you know then it's really hard to change your mind about deep things and that's one of the purposes of education it seems to me is to give you that experience and it's one of the problems about that coddling that you're talking about is that we, we kids don't want to be presented with any ideas that make them feel uncomfortable and if you're not uncomfortable i, I i've said you're not purpose, learning yeah you're not learning the purpose of science learning. and the purpose of education is to make you uncomfortable yes yeah. okay Here's something that More I learned. Unsafe spaces. Yeah, here's an unintended consequence that I learned from you. Um, and um, uh, oh, it's 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 number E, not number F. Uh, where's E? Um, and it has to do. Uh, oh, here it's it is. Like, tabulated? Like, how have you done? I this? have so many notes on your on your thing. Oh. You don't you don't want to see what I have here. I have uh, you know I like to do my homework. That um, makes me that makes me that makes me very happy. Good. And, and well, I think if I'm going to wait, if I'm going to spend two, two hours of someone's time and I'm hoping the public will listen, I owe it to them and the public to, to do my homework. So that's. Well, I really appreciate that. Okay. Okay, good. Well, one of the things that surprised me was this. In California, banning plastic bags resulted in more paper bags and other thicker bags being used, which increased carbon emissions due to the greater amount of energy needed to produce them. Paper bags would need to be reused 43 times to have a smaller impact on the environment. And plastic bags can constitute just 0.8% of plastic waste in the oceans. Glass bottles can be more pleasant to drink out of, but they also require more energy, that I knew, to manufacture and recycle. So, but, but what you talk about would surprise me, you know, there's this big thing about plastic and I, you go, can't go to a restaurant and get a plastic straw anymore. And you point out that, Maybe that's misplaced. So maybe could you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think it's a it's fascinating personally. Well, thank you, Lawrence. And 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 by the way, this is one of these things. So I had two things I had never researched at all for this book: meat and plastics. And the I, feedback I, meat is what I want to talk about next. So they're okay. perfect. Okay. And the feedback Go I've got people love those two chapters. And I think it's because I did bring I had some beginner mind, you know. Yeah, so also, yeah, well, sure. gonna, you know, so I'm like, I'm gonna start with the straw up the turtle's nose, you know, that's like what everybody knows. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and but I will say I didn't quite get to the bottom of it until after the book was out, and I only recently got to the bottom of it. So let me cut to the chase, which okay. is that if you don't know that your plastic is being recycled locally, if you don't know that for sure, you should throw it in the trash, 100%. And by the way, I do buy my milk out of bottles because I think it tastes better, 
And if your energy, whatever, it doesn't matter. But like, like plastic yeah, waste. Sure. Okay, so here's what I want to say: plastic waste in the ocean is not something that we should want because it does kill sea life. It's not the biggest threat to sea life. That's overfishing and bycatch and other things. But we should still care about it. Almost all of it, not all, not all of it, but almost all of it comes from poor countries that don't have landfills and incinerators. And that we have this incredible solution to our consumer waste, which is landfills and incinerators. Everyone kind of has these, there's been so much concern trolling on this. Yeah. The new incinerators break up the docks and molecules because they burn so hot. That was the initial concern. We have them now in downtown Tokyo. Incinerators are wonderful. It's an incredible achievement. Landfills are also great. They've gotten better. They line them, they capture the methane gas, they burn the gas for electricity. It's, they've gotten amazing. There's no risk of running out of space in the United States. If you don't have enough space, like in Japan or the Netherlands, you incinerate. So that's the full basic story of it. But yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, the thing I didn't quite get to the bottom of until recently, and I still haven't made a big enough, I can't, I figured I don't know how to make a big enough deal of it, is that it appears as though much of the plastic waste, not all, but a lot of it that's going into the ocean from poor countries that don't have waste waste management systems is coming from us. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in there how China refused to take our plastic mm -hmm. waste that we were recycling. So it's going to these other poor countries that don't have the facilities. And yet we're, it's, it's a complete um, abrogation, is that the right word, of responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, by everybody in this process, I think there's actually corruption that goes on not like, I don't want to mean like kind of illegal, but it's a corrupt process to tell people that they are preventing their plastic from going into the ocean by recycling it and then it potentially going into the ocean. It's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's bonkers. And I have to say the big consumer products companies that determine all this stuff, they've completely allowed themselves to get in this situation of, of a green with Greenpeace that plastic waste, that, that, there, that there's no, that, that, that recycling of plastic is a, is a good solution. First of all, we don't even need, we shouldn't even do it. I mean, there's some thicker plastics that you should do, but we should really just be throwing it in the landfills, containing it in the landfills or incinerating it. I mean, that, I just think it's- I, I prefer the landfill part because it's sequestered. The carbon is sequestered in, if it's in the land, landfill. And, but and you that, know, there's not that much carbon that comes out. Yeah, I know there's not that, but but it, but in yeah. fact, I was gonna, I, this may be of interest to you. In fact, I, I've done a, a podcast edit with my, my friend, George Church. I don't know if you know, George. he's a oh, sure. well-known, he's a very, he's brilliant in many, many ways. Yeah, yeah. Synthetic biology. But what he wanted to do, in terms of genetic manipulation, we talked about. It. He wants to 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 uh, engineer microbes that will basically make plastic, not not gas, but plastic. And then he wants to use that to, to sequester carbon. He wants to build like a bridge across the Pacific with plastic. And you know, I mean, he, 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 some of this may be very well, but he said, or or build structures, build high rise buildings with new kinds of plastics. And so his argument is, is let's um. Let's more let's tr more plastic, not less plastic, because it sequesters carbon. Anyway. Yeah, but I mean, the only thing I will say is that you know we make the current fossil plastic out of the by out of a byproduct from oil and gas, so it's a little yeah. bit like you know, all of the buffalo right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now you know, there's people, there's nuclear advocates who who describe how in the future, when we're 100% nuclear, we'll have to use we'll have to use some fossil fuels to make plastics. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, okay. Anyway, that I couldn't resist bringing yeah. it up. It's sort of peripheral. And the other, but the other thing I'm bringing up partly because uh, uh, this, this, uh, this January, 
first will be my one year sort of not being as being us not being a vegetarian but a pescatarian um I, when i be, when i went to the mekong we decided to try, be, be you know be, take a do a vegetarian diet and for a variety of reasons i've decided not i've spent time with my friend peter singer and other people as well um uh uh and and so yeah i've moved away from eating any kind of meat and for and and ethical reasons or for well that's for... an interesting question you know it's hard to know in the end i think um there are ethical issues. Sure, I look, feel better looking a cow in the face when I see one. But, um, but um, uh, also, the, also the environmental reasons. And you, and you, and one of the chapters of your book is about, you know, I, you're, you were, as far as I can understand, you were someone who became a vegetarian, partly for environmental reasons, then discovered those environmental reasons were wrong and stopped being a vegetarian. Is that correct? Is that? No, is that, no, no. Heavens no, no. I mean, it's... Um, um, <clears throat> and by the way, the ethical reason you could look a cow in the face, but that's only because someone else can eat the cow. Yeah, if no, everybody I know. can eat cows, there wouldn't be a cow looking in the face. But anyway, so I know. No, I often yeah. tell when I yeah. was when I had my Indian friends, I would often say, you know, if if we didn't eat cows, there wouldn't be cows. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. What, the, what what's the good of a cow? It's only yeah, round because yeah. people. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, but I yeah, can yeah. still feel and better. And the punchline for listeners is just that that chapter ends in a very. Um, it's probably my least. Um, it's a soft chapter in the sense that I sort of don't feel, I think we should not be too judgmental of people's choices on this. And I'm sure. certainly not. And no, I mean, literally, I, I think one of the most interesting, I think what you said is right. It's like, why are you vegetarian? Well, you kind of give a reason, but then maybe there were these other things going on. And we know from psychological research that there are deeper psychological motives sure. for vegetarianism, that vegetarianism is an ideology more than it is a practice in that most vegetarians eat meat. Um, and, and, but the other thing I want to say about it, um, meat production is our biggest land impact. So we yeah. use about half of the ice-free surface of the earth. About half of that half is just for pasture for meat. Yeah. It's been one of the biggest drivers and threatening um, species that we all care about. Yeah, that um, was all in my mind, yeah. Yeah, gorillas, penguins. Um, you go to New Zealand and, and people see these bucolic scenes of, the, of, a, of low density farming of sheep and whatever, but it's bad because it's, or it's bad. It's, it's, mm. It just takes away habitat. Yeah, it's yeah. It's really simple. That so the good news is it appears that the amount of we know pretty well now that the amount of land we use for pasture has declined by an area 80 percent the size of alaska since the year 2000 this is a massive environmental event totally under publicized you, yeah, and you stress great. it a lot i mean you stress it a lot and i was happy to see the people who disagreed with your book all agree with that that fact um even the people who critic who are critical in one way or another the fact yeah. that we can do more with less, which is one of the points you're making, by either farming better or or, or meat production, if you and um, but it is a but I'm glad you agree it is a fact that we use so much land and so many resources for meat and I guess the other and maybe now you're gonna and when I drive across the country and I see all those cornfields and I know the corn is being used to produce, to feed meat it's sort of still you know it it. it it, that does bug me a little bit, but but here's the thing I wanted to get get to, which which bothered me. So I, I I bought what you said, but the one thing that bothered me about it is that so you point out that vegetarianism, even if we, is not going to uh, from a carbon from a climate change point of view and carbon emission is not going to change the world a lot. Give it part in part because of the improvements in 
in, in meat and, and, and production and, and other things. So you say it might just produce a 10% reduction in, in, fossil, in, in carbon uh, dioxide emission. My, my question to you is, well, if we look at all, what we need to do, and I do believe we need to reduce carbon emission um, uh, because of the potential serious problems, if we don't, 10% um, is a good thing. What's it's wrong with that? It's so that's what you said. Well, you say if you, I mean, two you to, say it could be 10%. Two to 4% is the right number. And that's a number that is consistent among, among different studies in different countries by different um, scientists and researchers. So two to 4%. So let's say um, it's 4%. What's wrong else, with that? All else being equal, yes, then go yeah, to- Yeah, 4% is 4% less fossil fuel, 4%. I mean, yeah. they're kind of, you know talking about nuclear, which we're about to do. Four percent. There's a lot one, of countries that have on one jet. You'll blow it on one jet on one jet travel. Yeah. You'll blow it. You'll blow it. You'll blow it. I mean, so I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be vegetarian for for a variety of reasons. Um, and oh, I'm sorry. I think I forgot to mention. By the way, I, I stopped being vegetarian for instinctual, selfish, unconscious reasons. When my wife, uh, my ex-wife, had a baby, or sorry, she's pregnant, and she, I came home and she's making filet mignon, and I was just like, what is that? You know, it had been like 10 years, you know, and I was like, I'm going to eat that. And there was no just sort of we're not rational. Right. We're mostly, yeah, animals. Sure. you know, Benjamin Franklin has a great story when the guy cuts open the fish and all the fish come out. He was like, well, that fish ate all those fish. So I should be able to eat those fish, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, I mean, look, I like I said, I, I, I fine. Take credit for the two to four percent. But but I just kind of go, I'm going to take credit for flying less. Yeah, but I mean, I think we have, and this is a perfect segue, yeah. and it's the first, yeah. perhaps the first perfect segue <laughs> yeah. in this discussion, because I, I wanted to get to nuclear power in, in a little more detail, partly because it's a it's a passion of yours, and it's a lot of discussion in the book, and partly because I, I agree with many things, and I disagree with other things, so I think it's a good chance for us to have a, a discussion, and here's the point. You're, it's fair to say you are Let's go nuclear, 100% nuclear. Nuclear is the only solution in the long run. And, my, and, and I've spent a lot of time on, uh, in various groups, including with the American Physical Society and other groups. First of all, you make the point, and, and again, I, I think it, in my own mind, personally, it detracts from the, the strength of the argument for nuclear to argue that, about the people who, that the people who are trying to suppress nuclear are fossil fuels and renewables that should be irrelevant it seems to me nuclear has got to stand on its own own feet sure those things happen and you're right yes. we need to know about them maybe from a political perspective we need to know about them but yeah. um but yeah but I, there's I, no I, one I the point i agree yeah okay so the no one i know who's serious about energy is anti-nuclear let's so let's just make that clear there's no one I know who seriously thought about energy that thinks we should not have nuclear at some level. Okay, the difference is that all the people I know and and the studies I've been involved in say, you know, you can't get to where we're going to go. We need to go in a time frame in which we need to do it by any one solution. That's dumb. Everything, That's just on. dumb and wrong. Oh, just let me finish first, and then you can explain why it's dumb and wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. 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 Um. There are lots of things we can do, like we can, if you have that four, not that I think everyone should be vegetarian, but let's just take it. If you have that 4%, then that's 4% less, you have to worry about building nuclear plants right away. 
and that challenges that. Sure. If you travel by jets less, then yeah. then then and and if you if you use natural gas instead of coal or instead of coal, for example. So there's there's a, there's a what was that? Which I defend in the book. Yeah, I know exactly. So what I'm saying yeah. is, everyone I know who's thought about this in detail, and I've spent a lot of time with um, uh, Steve Chu and Ernie Moniz and other people who were who I thought a lot about energy, and and and, and in my own time and being on various committees of the uh, physics committees, yeah. think about it, suggests that there one needs to that there's a whole bunch of things we can do with nuclear as a component to get to where we need to go in a time frame of of that we need to do it in. Yeah. Okay. So would you, would you, ex so what's wrong with that argument? Okay. Um, well, I'm not sure that there is anything wrong with it, depending on how it plays out. So my view is that the main event is transitioning from coal to natural gas to nuclear. I would like to see that as, ha as fast as possible and no faster to maintain safety, you know, good economics, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't think we need geoengineering. I'm against it. I don't think we need carbon capture and storage. I'm against it. I don't think we need solar panels and wind turbines. I've got some in my backyard, but I'm against them at an industrial scale. Okay, that's my view. That's my that's my whole view. Exactly, um, and I'm glad so, I gave you a chance. No, but but here's what's going on with Ernie Moniz and Chu and those guys, and you just call it the Bill Gates view which is they go, well, no, no, we need a mix. We need a mix, guys. We need a mix. It's going to be some gas and some carbon capture and storage and solar panels and wind turbines and blah, blah, blah. First of all, analytically, it's not true. You can just do what France did. We know is we have real world proof. You can just do nuclear. I'm not saying you should in every situation. No, no, no. Uh, yes. Okay. But you can just do that. And then you replace over time, heat, cooking, transport, all from nuclear. So that's not like there's like it's not like there's any physical obstacles to that. It's not physical. It's social and political. Yes. Okay. Yes. But, the, so, but, the, but, okay, but okay, you okay, can't okay. deny that those fa factors exist. Yes. And, and I, of course, course I don't. You, so you can't go to nuclear. The point is that physically, no. it, realistically, uh, uh, you can't do. You, United States can't do what France is right now because it's just politically and socially impossible. I don't agree. I mean, first of all. Would you say this? Why wouldn't you just say the same thing about climate change? In other words, you go, it's not possible. How is how are you making? You're making the judge. I mean, that's not a scientific statement. No, no. I mean, well, you're right. I said it's a political one. The point is, yeah, okay, part okay, of the issue, okay. So let's argue. So let's argue about politics. Then we know. We're yeah, yeah, politics. yeah. I'm not saying scientifically. Of course, scientifically, okay. uh, zero doubt. The okay. question is, what can we do in a realistic time frame? Yes. And that's what I mean, Mike. That's part of my concern about climate change. You're absolutely right. We can. We can bring the Bernadettes and other people in the world up above, but can we do it practically in a time frame yes. that will happen? And that's my concern. Okay? Let's talk about that. So let's talk about okay. politics. Well, no, no, I mean, I just want to raise the political. Let's. Right. I want to get back to the science first before we get to the politics. And I want to get to back one bit of science, which I agree 1000% with you on. And, I are, and I've tried to publicize it. And I want to use this as more of an example to publicize it, is that nuclear power is not unsafe. In fact, it is incredibly safe, and 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 the and I want to go more strongly than you did talking about Fukushima. Okay, you talk about and you give a great example how after Fukushima, Japan ultimately took enacted, and I have it somewhere here enacted uh, um, uh, measures that of course were much worse for the climate, much worse for the environment, etc. But Fukushima is an example of how safe nuclear power is because you could not pick a stupider place 
to put a nuclear power plant, nor design it more stupidly than that power plant was designed. And it's a perfect storm for disaster if you wanted to pick the worst possible design and the worst possible location, that would be it. And even then, when you look at what happened, far from, the, the, the death toll, the, the, that is less than from coal in any given year. So let's make well, There it is clear. no death toll. <laughs> exactly, there is no death toll. But what I'm yeah, saying, yeah. I mean, even if you, you know, you can, people might argue yeah, one way yeah. or another, but, but so few people have died directly and even, and, and so that's the first thing. The second thing is part of the problem. And you know, this is where I, as a physicist have become sort of evangelical in this regard because radioactivity as, is this word that scares people. It's a terrifying word, radioactivity because of nuclear weapons. And, and you know, we've all seen the movies of you know, radioactivity gonna kill us after a nuclear war. And even if it's not them. And yeah. the thing is, it's so much easier to monitor radioactivity than it is from pollution from coal, for example. There's nothing easier to measure than radioactivity yeah. if you're talking about so a, awesome. a, yeah. a, pollu a pollutant. So let right. me, so I wanna make those two science statements where yeah. we're in complete agreement, but I'm saying it with the premature at least of a physicist, okay? So- uh, Physicists um, have always been good on, almost always been good on nuclear, but some of the worst uh, anti-nuclear people have been physicists too. Yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. But now let, let's go to the areas that are uh, maybe a little more contentious about why I think, why I'm not so as, as a, why I'm much more say in favor of solar than you might be, or at least as being a component and why I have some problems with nuclear. And it is really economics. It's not, it's not the other aspects. I mean, there's zero doubt that nuclear in it, all other things being equal is, is just a perfect way of generating power. Do you think um, that for, if, if do you think it's a perfect way to generate power in Saudi Arabia and Iran? In the long term, but yeah. I mean, in other words, you said it's totally safe, but is it safe in Iran and Saudi Arabia right now? Okay, well, and this is the this is the one of the questions. There's three questions that you and you you're pretty uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons, you you have a sort of pro nuclear weapon view, which I also disagree with, but you think nuclear weapons have kept the peace and and stopped wars, and I think um, if you've read um, command and control. You see, it's just there, but for the grace of God, there's been so many cases where we've come so close. The more nuclear weapons you have, the more likely you are to have a tragedy. And, in, and, while, and while India and Pakistan may have stopped, while the fact that they possess nuclear weapons may have stopped aggression at some level, the fact that they have them is such- Terrifying. It's terrifying because- I, I agree. Okay. That's why okay. they work so well. Well, they're, but they're terrifying for the rest of the world too, you know. I know. I mean, I mean this is really important. And is that, is that a local nuclear war between Pakistan and India will kill a billion people worldwide. Because it's, and this physicists have shown this, and this is, a, this is, it's not the debate about that. No, no, it's not the nuclear winter. Yeah, of, of, it's not the nuclear winter of, of Carl Sagan. It's the more recent work that's been, pretty strong that I at least I found convincing about yeah. where about where where in the atmosphere things get sent and what it might do to climate. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a big debate and Carrie Emanuel paradoxically has been on on a more skeptical side of that threat. But I don't think you need nuclear winter yeah. to be terrified okay. of nuclear weapons. No, but but I'm saying is that is that the more you have, the more likely it is 
yeah. you're going to have a problem. So anyway, I, mean, but, I think there's an underlying... but that's one of the problem. But that's one of the problems of, of that people do. And I, the reason I'm interrupting you is I yeah. want to get back to nuclear power. Um, yeah. The concerns. Let me let me just lay them out, and then you can explain why everyone everything I'm saying is wrong. Okay, um, in your view. Okay, first of all, um, well, there is a concern about a, a, a potential correlation between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. So there's a proliferation issue that doesn't exist with hydroelectricity, say, or, or solar, okay? Um, so that's, that's one concern. That is a real concern, I think, in my opinion. But more important than that is the fact that economically, if we, there's, there's, there's social and economical issues. One of them is mildly, mildly scientific. And that is that with, and, and, and in fact, I was just looking at a, at, at, a, um, at a study from the world in data, which is one of my favorite places to go to. I love looking at the graphs from there. And one of the graphs is, um, it, it, they just produced a thing, why did renewables become so cheap so fast? It's interesting for you to look at if you haven't looked at it. It's a new- I, Of course, I've seen it all. And I yeah. write about it in my book. Okay, yeah. But so the question is, so solar is, is going down and, solar, and there's a learning the curve of solar panels yes and the cost of electricity from solar panels when the sun is shining is going down the cost of grids that use a lot of unreliable solar and wind is going up okay and there is a reason for that and it's because unreliability externalizes huge huge costs and the low power densities of solar and wind farms, which require three to 400 times more land than a natural gas or nuclear plant, create huge, huge costs. We've had massive grid reliability problems in California, big problems in Britain, big problems in Australia. Those yeah. are expensive problems to solve. They require keeping more gas powered plants up online. They require more transmission. So solar and wind make electricity expensive, even though solar panels and wind turbines when they're generating electricity, generate that electricity cheaper yeah. than they have. Okay, that's, but the, that's what I would say. Yes, but one can one can use the same thing against nuclear power plants, saying that yes, they're more expensive than they need to have been for a variety of reasons, but they don't have to be in the future. That's called learning. Right? Yeah, but this is different. This is different than that. Um, this is an inherent. You add large quantities of unreliable electricity to electricity grids costs are going to go up for reasons that have been well documented. When you add large amounts of nuclear power plant to your grid, you have to do very little of that. That's why, Fran, you don't need to have a bunch of big transmission. You don't well, need to buy a bunch of land. So, you know, I mean, I kind of go. Well, OK, in, but yeah, go on. Go on. Sorry. No, no, I, was gonna say, I mean, I think you kind of combine the high the high economic cost of unreliable solar and wind and the high environmental cost. And you realize that it's driven by power density and the intermittency, these are not solvable problems. Those are inherent to the solar and wind flows. They're okay. not solvable. Okay, my okay. Let me let me give you my two other or few other concerns. Yeah. I've one of the arguments I've had about uh, about nuclear is economic, namely, they're they're big capital investments. They take a long time, on average, to build and and operate, and therefore. Um, and, and, and therefore, there are economic issues that always rise during a, a, you know, over a 20 year period. It's the same reason it's hard to build an accelerator Over a 20 year period. There's recessions and 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 uh, and, and and periods of growth. Um, and so 
because they're such large capital investments and they take so much time to really build, I don't see the one concern is I don't see them as something that can help in the interim period to uh, particularly address uh, global energy issues. Yeah, I just go, I go, it's nonsense. I mean, look, the Koreans are building nuclear, before the anti-nuclear government came in power, the Koreans were building nuclear power plants faster than coal plants. That yes. was one of my discoveries by going there and talking to people. You build the same reactor over and over again with public money you at low build interest. Build the same reactor. That's the key yeah. point. You go the same yeah. reactor, and then it, and then the cost per reactor. Yeah. Goes down and, and, and so my disagreement with the rest of the, the with with the rest of the pro nuclear movement and the nuclear industry is they want to keep changing the design. No, 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 no. That's I, we yeah. agree completely. What you yeah. want to do is you want to get something that works, and 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 I would argue that what you want is the smallest possible size nuclear reactor. No, gosh, no, Lawrence, no, no oh boy. No. no, this is basic physics. You have to have, you, you don't get to reduce the size of the labor force at the same scale that you reduce the size. So the Koreans went from a thousand megawatts to 1400 megawatts per reactor. Oh my gosh, they got 40% more electricity without having to add hardly any more people. So no, you're totally wrong about the no, size. No, 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 there's a reason for it, okay? The reason I'm gonna argue is that first of all, I mean, you, you can build ma very manageable reactors that are small, but this more importantly, one of my concerns about nuclear as centralized power, which is, I mean, you're in favor of centralized power because of power density, but part of the problem of energy is not just generation, but transmission. We have this, and I'm thinking about North America now, not so much, okay? Nuclear power plants are expensive here and time consuming, and more, much more so than Korea for the same reason that China can build skyscrapers much more quickly than the United States. We've got regulatory systems that are in place that make yeah. it, that make from a realistic perspective, make it expensive and time consuming. And that isn't gonna change in the near term. Oh, sure so right could. now- Sure it could. Look, it we, could, here's, here's what I'll say. We have 62, around 60 power plant sites. You can add reactors to them. You don't need to break any new green uh, ground to make any new nuclear in the United States. Um, look, I mean, if the United States gets, if the United States doesn't get back into making heavy metal, heavy industry, nuclear power, I mean, what can you imagine? Solar in the United States is just unboxing crappy Chinese solar panels. Mm -hmm. We're going to send all of our wealth to China when we could be producing it here. It makes zero sense. The world is reverting back to national interest away from this this pretty this, this globalization which went too far. So this assumptions that you make that somehow we can't do it in the United States, it's just it's too. No, no, linear. I'm just saying from a real. I'm not saying can't. I'm just saying realistically, if you look at the. History I don't of think it's realistic. I well, just here, I think what's real. I think what's unrealistic is the idea that Americans are going to keep spending money unboxing crappy Chinese solar panels. And, and that that communities are going to continue to be quiet about well, it. We're organizing well, that, much of this. Yeah, stuff. but that's but, that but, but but hold on a second. If you can build nuclear power plant, why can't you build a solar panel? I mean, it requires three to four hundred times more land. No, no, I'm not talking about land. I'm talking about unboxing the box that you have to unbox doesn't have to be made in China. It, it all of it is. I know, but you just and no one. But hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. You see that? You see the. Yeah. The problem here, you're telling me France has nuclear power and Korea has nuclear power, so we can have it. And now you're telling me China makes solar panels, but we can't. Of course we could. Yeah, of, of course. course we could. Of so course, it doesn't have it to be cheap anymore. Well, they would eventually, right? 
Um, yeah, right. I mean, you know, eventually it would get cheaper. It would get cheaper. I don't know if you get to the China price, honestly. I don't know. I just don't know. You might well, be right. I don't. I can't say. You, I can't say either way. Yeah. I'm not, and by the way, but, by the way, but in terms of political realism, there is nobody proposing that. There's no. literally nobody. So, well, so I mean, I, you can't on the one hand accuse me of being politically unrealistic on nuclear, and then say I'm being I'm being unrealistic. Well, on I, I, yeah, I'm both ways about. too. I, you could say the same thing about me, yeah. but but uh, but, but for me, Lord, aren't you just anti? But are you you aren't you really underlying saying that you're worried about nuclear weapons? You, you said know, I'm, I'm, oh, that's one. No. But I'm also no. but my other problem with and maybe and you're going to tell me I'm too influenced by Amory Lovins, who I spent a long time with many years ago. But but. Part of one of the things, one of the advantages I see, let, so there's lots of problems about solar that you've pointed out. Okay. But one of the advantages that I see is also what you see as one of the disadvantages. Namely, it's distributed. Namely, so I can I I can have solar panels on my house and I can I can take care of my own a large to large extent, my own power needs. I can uh, and and one of the problems of energy is not just production, but distribution. And we have this power grid in the, that's quite problematic in this country. And nuclear by definition, because it's centralized in high density, requires a grid, maybe requires storage elsewhere. And, and where solar panels, solar, for example, can be done locally. Every house, there's a lot of, lot of land use, but if every house had solar panels on them, yeah, pollution-wise, it might be a big problem 25 years down the road, and, and that's an issue we need to worry about. But it allows me, and it may, and it may allow some, and, and again, I haven't studied this, but, but my, my, my suspicion is it may allow some poorer countries where it's difficult to have the infrastructure to build a large central power plant for people to have power of their own um, computers or whatever yeah. with solar panels. So uh, the distributed aspect of solar panels is something to, that for me, even though it's lower power density, I see as kind of an advantage. I and know, you, and I think that I think the reason you see it for that is for non-scientific reasons. Could let be. Me explain why. Okay. Um, the process of creating prosperity is about centralizing energy and food production. So what you're, what Amory is suggesting, but he's more, he's more um, clear that what he wants is degrowth. Yeah. yeah. What, what you would be suggesting in going backwards on, if you're going from de from centralized food and energy production to decentralized food and energy production, you are proposing making food and energy more expensive because that is what will happen. We do not, most people do not want food and energy production happening near them. We don't like it. It's industrial. We'd want to put it somewhere far away. I don't. I, I don't think you do either. Um, so this idea of distributing the, the you know, especially uh, solar and wind, which have these massive environmental impacts, why would we want to distribute that? Why would that be viewed as realistic? It's highly unrealistic. We're in the midst right now. Right now is happening a protest in Britain against a massive proposed solar farm that even Greenpeace uh, is against. So, so it's the decentralization of renewable energy production that makes it unpopular. It's well, yeah, really but, that's, but that's an industrial scale. I agree with you. No one wants a factory. Yeah. Just like, no other way, no one wants nuclear waste. That's a problem, yeah. even though they shouldn't worry about it. Even though they should worry about it. Do you know why they concentrate solar panels? Can you guess? Uh, because it's more efficient, I assume. It makes okay. it about half as expensive because you because think about the labor. 
Yeah, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. One roof, one roof versus just a bunch of dudes unboxing crappy solar panels from China and spreading them over landscapes. Pretty easy work. You know, you're, you, from a global yeah. perspective, it's more efficient. But for me as an individual or for me as a, in a country where I, if I want to have some, if if I want to, in some sense, have more control over my energy environment, putting solar panels on my house is a good thing. No, it's a good fantasy. Let me tell you why. It, we had a blackout in California. The sun was shining and people with solar panels on the roofs couldn't get electricity from it. They're hooked up to the grid because that's what they're for is to get grid electricity. We... We taxed poor people with more expensive energy to subsidize my rich neighbors in the Berkeley Hills to get subsidized solar panels and subsidized Teslas. So there's an equity problem. There's a cost problem. Of course, it's, those it's a fantasy of independence. I did a focus group once with just young guys here. Mm -hmm. And once I introduced the idea of being free from the grid with solar panels and batteries, they were so in love with this idea that nothing we could say to them would change their mind. So I would just I would suggest that this that this it's a powerful it's a fantasy that's so American in some ways. I'm going to produce all my own. We see it in Berkeley, right? I'm going to make all my own food and energy. That, that's the whole Michael Paul and whatever. It's yeah. total bullshit. Like we have a very large garden in my backyard. My wife loves cigar. I love the food from the garden. If we depended on that, we would die. Like we depend on consuming large amounts of food and energy produced at scale efficiently far from us and that's the way it's always going to be I yeah mean, okay i mean and we, we could talk about this at length i'm not yeah. unpacking things enough but let me just yeah. i'm just trying to point out things to con that one might be concerned about uh, by the way i think you'll agree with me that you're right a lot of this is just subsidized the subsidized teslas are subsidized. but the subsidies for that are far less than the subsidies for oil and gas that uh, no. <laughs> no yes no they're not they're just not, Lawrence. I mean, they're in the, the R&D federal, federal, what, what is it? How many, how many billion kind of dollars? Amory, the way that Amory plays that game with numbers, I can tell you in great detail, the games he plays. What I'm he does, Amory. Count, I was thinking they of count, they count well depreciation as a subsidy, which is absolutely just. I was talking about R&D. Not, I'm not talking about. I wrote, I was lead author on the biggest study that's been done, or the first big study done on the fracking revolution in the United States, and it was trivial what the what the taxpayers spent to get the fracking revolution. Absolutely trivial. So, so I'm wrong. So that you're telling me, if you consider the whole spectrum of oil and gas exploration, that the oh. R&D subsidy is smaller than that that's used for solar. Oh, by a lot. Oh, I mean, if you really okay. want to criticize, I'm willing to be wrong on that. I, I just don't know yeah. the numbers, but. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's the production tax credits for but, solar. But let me, but, but let, let me, I want to just, uh, we don't have enough time, unfortunately, to do this, give do with justice. But let me just say, if I'm Bernadette, or maybe not Bernadette, but if I'm, what, the advantage, it seems to me, of solar is that if I want to bring myself up to a point where I can have lights at, you know, where I can have, where I can power some aspect of my small place where I live right now, just to bring me up so that I can have a computer or something that, that somehow allows me to create a micro bank or what, you know, that allows me to drag myself up. What's, what's the problem of, of solar panels for that? Look, if you want to go give Bernadette a solar panel, I'll tell you where to send it. I want yeah. Bernadette to have a solar panel, fine. But that's not what's being proposed. Okay. The World okay. Bank is taking, no, let me just, this is really important. Okay. The World Good. Bank is taking money from what would be for gas plants, which are reliable hydroelectric dams, okay. and, and then subsidizing the sub-Saharan African governments to buy crappy solar panels from China 
And then, and then what do you get from them? You don't get any electricity at night. Yeah. You're left with a huge amount of electronic waste. And the bigger point, this is the most important thing. The way that Bernadette will get modern energy is by moving to the city. She's not doing anything that right now she's growing, you know, yeah. I know, but for the near term, she's not in the city. You're right. I mean, the long you're term saying, might be better, it, but you're can't... saying, is it okay as a charitable exercise to give Bernadette a solar panel? Come on. But that's not what's that's not what's I, I know, but this is part here. of my problem is that, yeah, in the long run, maybe moving the city is good. But people have lives they have farms they have kids. They, it's difficult for them to make that long term economic unless they're forced to by circumstances. It's difficult. No, to... if look, if the World Bank mm -hmm. helped to build the Inga Dam. Yeah. And H&M and the other fast fashion sweatshop operators um, would potentially locate in Goma. I mean, that's a tricky city because it's a little far away from port, but just to go with me, you know, they would locate there because they have cheap electricity, a huge uh, amount of cheap labor. Bernadette's labor right now is basically free. Yeah. Um, and they can, and, and they would be able to, and Bernadette would love to get that job. Are you kidding yeah. me? When you exactly. interview women, poor farmer women, they would love to have that job. If you create the opportunities, if you build it, they will come. Okay, that's- what, Absolutely. Okay. That's Absolutely. right. But if the opportunities don't exist, but they don't exist because the Malthusians took yeah. over the World Bank. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you kind of, you got us back to full circle from, from you know, I mean, um, you kind of, I, I just think this, I worry about the kind of, you kind of go, well, but right now it's faster to have a solar panel. Well, yeah, I mean, I put a solar panel on my roof. I have solar electricity during the sunlight hours, but build, and building a nuclear plant takes 10 years. Yeah, but after the nuclear plant's built, it's enough power for 3 million people. Yeah, so nuclear bands should be built. I agree, but I just don't yeah. see them. Um, I just don't see them as a, uh, the panacea well, that, that you do. Don't see realistically. Them or you, you kind of don't want them. Oh, no, I don't have any problem with nuclear, but I, I just think given the realities, especially in North America, that that for the first, you talk about 200 years from now, the only nuclear power plants, maybe. But I'm not saying for, that. I'm saying but for that the near-term could... future, I don't, I don't see it as. I mean, look, politically we, we have... and socially realistic. But, but yeah. here, let me ask you another question. This is, a, you know, I did a TV show once, and and I was had a solar plant in the back. Uh, they flew, they drove me up somewhere in California, and it was solar thermal, namely. Yeah. And it struck me as much more useful than solar electric in the sense that, so all these mirrors were pointed on this salt, which would heat up and stay hot all night. So what's wrong with that? Well, I write about it in the book. That's the yeah. farm they built that requires 400 times more land than a nuclear plant. In yeah, order, yeah, to, no, build yeah. it, in order it, to build it, they had to pull our endangered desert tortoises out of their burrows, put them on the back of pickup trucks where many of them were penned and died. Mm -hmm. um, the project is widely viewed as, a, as an economic boondoggle and disaster in California. They didn't realize it at the time. One of the towers caught on fire and they kill at least 6,000 birds a year, which are attracted to the light. Solar thermal is considered basically a, a dead technology at this point, been completely eclipsed by solar photovoltaics. So what's wrong with it is low power densities. It's low power densities, but you would agree at least it resolves the problem of power at night. No, it actually doesn't. Um, nope. It's actually not sufficient for, the idea was you get some of it sufficient for peak hours, but you got to remember about storage. The most important, this is just physics. Yeah. Every new energy conversion, electricity to chemical, electricity to salt, which is what that yeah. is. Yeah, um, sure. And back to electricity, you're paying an energy penalty mm, somewhere between 20 and 40%. 
So you don't want to add energy conversions to the, the grid I mean, sure. electricity. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. But I mean, you, you, every time you do that, there's a, there's trade-offs. You, you, you know, you don't want to, but if you want to be able to store energy, then you inevitably have a trade-off, right? So if, you've have, if you want to be able to store energy, if you could generate energy in one place and you need it somewhere else at a different time, you need to store it or a different. Yeah. And so and anytime so you build, do that, there's. Yeah. So they built Diablo Canyon, our last nuclear plant in California. They yeah. built a pumped storage facility um, along with it. Yeah. And it allows for that. But the difference and there's a conversion factor that you lose something when you do that. Yeah, but, that's but, okay. the but you live with it. Well, but the difference, but it's not just all else is equal. The difference yeah. is that the nuclear plant is 90% capacity factors and the solar plant is something like 30 or maybe 40 okay. at best. Point. Okay. And those okay. differences are very, very big, when okay. it, when, especially when aggregated onto the grid. Okay. By the way, I, I, one thing that I, I meant to ask you is, being because I grew up in Canada and, and, and where there's a lot of hydroelectric power, I always think of hydroelectricity as renewable. And, and yet you talk about, you, you're a fan of hydroelectricity, but not a fan of renewables. So is there a, am I wrong? Hydroelectricity is renewable. Yeah, um, I mean, I kind of go, I've tried to figure out how to talk about it, but basically kind of my view is, you know, wood to coal to gas to nuclear, mm -hmm. and then you go, where do hydroelectric dams fit in? And I go, hydroelectric dams are the highest form of renewables. Okay. So, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I'm not even like against, I mean, I defend burning, I defend burning coal, right? Yeah, coal I know. Improvement yeah. Over wood. And so I kind of go, so Bernadette, it's, I mean, so for me, it's not like, which technologies do I like? It's yeah. like in Congo, it's obvious to everybody that they, it's the Grand Inga. In yeah, Mozambique, yeah. it's obvious that it's gas. Um, in some places like Zambia, they may need to use coal. You know, okay, well, I'm in agreement in that way too, and that's what I think about yeah. the multi-tiered approach to trying to resolve climate change problem. And nuclear is an important component, but many other tiers are can be useful, especially since the, especially. And now let's get. I, I, we, I don't want to go too much longer. I want I want to deal with climate change, particularly at least climate issues, in the last ten minutes. And, sure. and then, uh, and this has been fascinating and learning for me, and and maybe Good. for people. Um, uh, and maybe for you, who knows? But anyway, um, um, uh, no, I've been loved. But I'm sorry. I, yes, I have enjoyed this. I like the differences of opinion. I don't have any problem with the discussion or disagreement. I love it. Okay, me too. Anyway, but so um, we, you were just leading me somewhere where I forgot, but um, where I was going to go about climate. But um, um, was I mean, I thought you, you were going to talk. About, I thought we were going to talk about the bomb. I thought that. <laughs> No, 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 no. Okay. But, um, but um, um, yeah, the many tiered approach. Okay. Here's the, and here's my point that, you know, I do, uh, the ski slope curve does matter to me. The fact that I do think the fact that carbon remains in the atmosphere for 600 to a thousand years means that you can't just wait for a sufficiently long time to do anything. There's a, there is a time urgency to at least begin the process. You agree with me there? Well, not only that, but I point out, as nobody does, we're reducing emissions. Oh, Carbon no, emissions peaked. Well, well, but wait a second, because because I think that people kind of leave this part out. Uh -huh. We have to do something. We have to do something, right? Well, okay, but let's maybe start by recognizing that we've been do we've been doing something. Carbon emissions have peaked in Germany, certain, Britain, and France, in, in a number of places, but not globally. I. The, I 
let me finish. Okay. They peaked in the United States. They peaked in Canada. They're peaking in most developed economies. And they're mostly, uh, that's United mostly States. I, I think people disagree with you about whether they peaked in the United States. I mean, the pandemic has helped a little it bit. They did peak in the United States. Uh, they, I, they, they, my they understanding peaked. is they're 25% larger than it was in 2007 now. No. That's the data that I've seen. But okay, it's, well, we can, we can check that. Wrong. But anyway, um, global, the bottom line is that globally, yeah. certainly, um, and and that and that yeah. certain rich. I mean, that's one of the complaints that some people have had. About what you say is that certain rich countries, Germany, England, and is it France, have indeed peaked. But other, but but if you look at the developed world, it hasn't peaked. If you take In the, the US, wealthy, if you take the conglomeration of wealthy countries, yeah. it hasn't peaked. Do you agree I, with I that? Gotcha, but let me just. In Europe, emissions in 2018 were 23 percent below 1990 levels. In the U.S., emissions fell 15 percent from 2005 to 2016. That was the latest data available. They've declined more since then. Um, um, when you look at carbon emissions from electricity, which is the first energy, which is the first yeah. form that will decarbonize fastest, they've declined by 25 percent in the United States and 63 percent in the U.K. between 2007 and 2018. I am a follower of positive psychology. Positive psychology teaches us that we do better when we build on our strengths rather than this kind of catastrophist. We have to start reducing our emissions right away. We're doing it. Let's do more of it. So A. Okay, but you also realize that it's, part, it's, the it's, it's partly, you can, but it's partly yeah. a false statement. We've been, partly it's reduced it, you will agree, by importing from China where they're producing it. So you, if you have to include the yeah. whole footprint, I don't think yeah, it's fair. I, and I, and I, I think I, it's, I, and I, and I, I go through those numbers and it, and, and, it, and it's true that importing these products from coal mining in China do, but that's not, that's not enough to, to, um, no, but not, I mean, I think, I think so. I think, yeah, but the numbers, it's not you, one you, to one it's not, and, okay. But yeah, you can't just quote, we can't, the, the, it's not as good as you say it is because we're, we're, we're passing the buck. I mean, well, and you're right. Okay, sure. But it's and, also better and than the, the way I'm saying it. it and it's the also better country. than the way I'm saying it because, because, it's like China's going to do the same thing. China so will eventually do. It, it, yeah. It, 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 so, so in other words, like, of course we peaked first. And of course, Britain peaked. Britain was the first country to industrialize. So, so yeah. of course they peak first. And, and so look, I mean, but I've had, anyway. yeah, I mean, so okay, I mean, let's not, is, let's not argue about this particular yeah. point. Okay. But we, the point is we need globally to peak. Okay? Yes. You agree. That we agree. And we, and, and it's, and it's, and it's time sensitive. It's not as if peaking in 2040 is the same as peaking in 2020, right? Because all, we have 20 years of, 10 gig, of about 10, gig, you know, 10 gigatons of carbon per year. So we have 30, you know, 20 years of that. That's 200 gigatons of carbon, which is one third of the amount of carbon that was in the atmosphere before the Industrial Revolution. So all else being equal, we don't want any carbon emissions. Yeah, okay, all else being equal, we don't want any climate change. So let's okay let's get, so, let's get the left to stop trying to shut down nuclear plants. I agree with you. Shutting down nuclear plants is and I've argued, and by the way, I've lobbied against it too and spoken yeah. out against it. And yeah. it's the stupidest thing in the world when to if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And and you know, and, and they're trying and, to break it. Yeah, I know they're trying to break it. And you're right. And I think. And I learn, and you know, I, of course, I'm always skeptical. I've read your, so I don't. This the political arguments you give for why it's trying to be broken are interesting to me. I'm always skeptical because I've, you know, I've only learned them from you, so I have to. I'm skeptical, but it's important to know that there are social and economic pressures that are working against nuclear that I didn't know about. So that's that's interesting.
Um, but anyway, so we need to we need to we need to turn the turn the the ski slope downward. And every year we wait, um, it becomes harder and economically more difficult to do what we need to do. We're not waiting, nobody's waiting. Nobody's waiting. There's no waiting going on. In fact, the transition from coal to gas continued under Trump. Well, of Didn't course, because, yeah, I know, it doesn't matter what he said. Coal's dead regardless. That, that's true. Because but global, gas is cheap. Yeah, but, right? okay. But globally, we are not turning it over. Okay, so it's true that no one's, that in various wealthy countries, efforts are made, are just the, people are voting with their feet. Coal's dying because it's not economically viable. It's not that people care about the climate. It's, it's, it's dying for many other reasons. Does it bother we, you? For that, does that bother you? No, 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 no. I mean, okay. I'm so, happy. And not only that, as someone pointed out a long time ago to me, which was the first time I learned it, you, you closed out, you close it, every coal plant in the in the country and the number of workers that are out of work is so minuscule compared to 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 almost anything else that it's not going to have an economic problem you know when you worry about coal miners but but yeah. as an economic problem it's not a problem globally i mean coal closing you can you can compensate for that by opening factories and other by retraining workers so easily so okay so that's yeah. not a problem but anyway globally we need to address this problem and and one of the things that you don't, so there's four items that I would say, and mostly, mostly from my own, to some extent from the, my own book or my own thinking about climate change that I would sort of slightly take issue with. First of all, I'm much more concerned about sea level rise than you are. I'm much more concerned about it because, um, because it's built in, first of all. And, well, and we did this already. We did sea level rise, right? Yeah, I know, but it's built in. Yeah, well, we didn't. Talk, we, we talked, but it, but I mean, it's built in. And and you argue, well, the Dutch are already talking about to people about in Bangladesh about it. But I don't see, um, I don't see. I, I I see it as a cause of concern that will produce socioeconomic problems that we need to be much more serious about, and and so I therefore take sea level rise as a climate change problem that is, um, that, is, that is severe in this century and cannot be addressed easily by much of the world in the way it will be in the developed world. So maybe we disagree, but I think it's, I, I mean, think- We already talked about it, man. I mean- Yeah, I no, agree. but were you aware of the, of, the, of the fact that places are, you know, are much, much lower, that, that, that there's much more sensitivity to sea level rise at the level of one meter than we ever imagined three years ago, five years ago. I, of, I, I honestly, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, I, I feel like I'm having to repeat myself. Okay, 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 let's forget that then. Let's talk about, you know, one of the things you talk about is the Amazon. Sure, it's not the lungs of the world, but here's a problem that, that as far as I can see is a real problem from the point of view of at least carbon and, and the point of view of, so part of deforestation of the Amazon and part of, and part of the effects of climate change are to make it drier. And in fact, the Amazon creates much of its own humidity as you know. And so eventually there's a potential for it to become drier and turn more savanna-like rather than rainforest-like. And I know you're a big fan of rainforest. That will turn it into a carbon source instead of a carbon sink because all of that material that dies off will become a carbon source. Are you concerned about that? Because some people have argued that we're, that that, that transition from rainforest to savanna 
can begin to happen if 20 to 25 percent of the of the Amazon is deforested. When whereas now 17 all, is almost all else being equal, I don't want to see any forest cut down. So all else isn't equal. That's the problem, right? And okay. that so all okay. else being equal, I don't really want any environmental change. Okay, but but, but that's a, but but I think that that's a potentially serious problem uh, with the Amazon is is the is the is not just a, not forest cut down for the sake of forests, but the fact that you eventually, if you change the topography, you eventually produce a huge, that is a huge carbon source rather than a sink. And I view that we as a big problem. We, okay. don't want, okay. we don't want more warming. Okay, let's, let's for the point of view of time, let's skip to, to um, I guess my, maybe my biggest problem is, has to do with uncertainties, okay? The reason I became serious more serious about worrying about climate change was seeing the uncertainties. So risk assessment is likelihood times devastation, right? Okay. And I know you bring up, you know, asteroid impacts and stuff like that, but I don't see it as an, as the likelihood of, of many of these things is the same as asteroid impacts. So I see the fact that the, the fact that we are uncertain and uncertainty is a good thing in science. It's not a bad thing because we, we now know because it tells us what's possible and it's, uh, it, but it also tells us what's impossible. Okay. Cause the range of th allowed things are possible. Take say Greenland, for example, just as one example, the data tells us that, okay, with six or seven degrees of global warming, the Greenland, the Greenland ice shelf will disappear for sure. Okay, and it has disappeared if you look at paleoclimate studies numerous times in the past. Okay, what period of time? Okay. Now, exactly over millennia, centuries or millennia. That's the that's a time frame. Centuries or or to one to two millennia. Okay, and that's great, but and that's seven meters of of sea level rise. Okay, and that's happened before, and and it can happen again. The uncertainties, however, that in order uh, suggest that in order to destabilize the ice shelf in Greenland, seven to six or seven degrees will definitely do it, but two degrees might because of nonlinear feedback effects that were already seen in 2019. You know, the reason there was so much ice mass lost in Greenland in 2019 wasn't just temperature, it was the fact that because of probably because of ocean currents, because of the fresh water being down there, there were high pressure areas over Greenland that weren't there before, which meant there was more sunlight, which meant there's more welting. And so you've got all these nonlinear feedbacks, which are really hard to calculate. And that's why there's uncertainties because nonlinear physics is really hard to calculate and really hard to simulate. And so you've got this possibility that you could have seven meters of sea level rise and it could be destabilized and happen because of temperature rise that is more or less guaranteed in this century. And that's a reason to be really concerned about letting it, uh, that's why climate change is more of a problem than it might be otherwise. It's not just the temperature rise, it's these possible nonlinear effects. And I know you poo poo tip, tipping points, but, there, but there's a lot of evidence that, you know, you could just give examples of how one, of how one Nonlinear impact can have an impact on another. I was going to give you a reading from a Nature article recently. It doesn't really matter how changing ocean currents will change yeah. the will dry out the savanna. And you know, and 
And, and, and look, and, here's how I resolve it. I go all else being equal, we want less emissions, less warming. So that's that's all else being equal, we want that. No, no, and but- the, Great, and then you kind of go, so then in terms of like uncertainties and real outlier, real black swan events, you know, these kinds of things, um, you do have to think about, by the way, and you cannot dismiss asteroids, super volcanoes, of course, yeah, of pandemics. Course. <laughs> but I don't think, but I think it's unfair to call a super volcano or asteroid at the same level as the possible severe impacts that are still speculative, but are much more plausible and more likely than, I mean, more. if I had to give a probability of being destroyed by an asteroid versus not being destroyed, but severe sea level rise, I would say sea level rise is much more likely, much more likely. I, I, that's, but that's not a scientific statement. That's just your kind of intuition. No, I mean, no, no I, it's looking at this. It's looking at the, it's looking at the probabilities. No, it's, it's I'm at, sorry, but it's look the best. Look, if you really want to get into this, read Voslav Sneel's book. Yeah. Where he goes through all of these outlier risks and actually like, that's not where he comes out in terms of either severity or probability. Um, look, I mean, yes, climate change is happening. And the way that we mostly, the way the IPCC and others mostly calculate the risk is in an incremental way, which I think is the right way to do it. Yes, yeah. there are some possibilities of unknown, unquantifiable tipping points. Yes. And we can say the same thing about other risks. That's yes. the point. And yeah. I think any effort to go beyond that is suggests false precision around either the probability or the severity. So to single out, so you kind of go, are you worried about black swans? Yeah, I no, am. No, but, here's, but here's my point. It's this, and it, to come back to, the, it maybe brings us together to end this. I mean, it's my last epilogue is called Fortune Favors the Prepared Mind in, in my book. And, and I think it's true in all aspects, okay? And when it comes to the severity, I, I wouldn't call them black swan events, but let's just take, I just took it as one example, the uncertainty of the Greenland I could have gone a lot of other things, but I think certainly the Greenland ice sheet. What you can say is because we don't know what temperature increase will destabilize that and, and guarantee that it will disappear and guarantee seven meters, right? we can moderate the time frame over which that's going to happen. So it may be inevitable at some level that Greenland ice sheet is gonna, but what we can do is if we think about it, is we can say, okay, but we can push that off into a future where maybe we can use technology in other ways to ameliorate the situation. And so we need yeah, to, we need like to see those outliers as a way for us to say, yes, but what can we do so to, to, to push that off? So what fortune favors the Paramount by, by understanding and accepting those possibilities it's not just it's not just flying the sky stuff it's saying we recognize that it mo further motivates us to prepare ourselves and prepare our technology our economics our innovation now and i think the same thing is true from for exactly what you're saying that because of the problems of poverty and and uh, and 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 not having clean water and looking at what happens to people, it motivates us to be prepared to do the rational things now, build dams in the Congo, 
provide economic opportunities in, in factories for people in cities. It's exactly the same. And I, 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 think, I think that's where I would sort of say we come together, nature and prosperity. We come together by saying, but by not forgetting those horrific potentials of climate change and just and saying, look, that's just that's just uh, wild speculation, but recognizing that the fact that those poss possibilities exist further motivate us now to act rationally to reduce the risks. Yeah, you'd agree I'm with that. that. But I also want to apply it to asteroids. I don't want to poo-poo asteroids either. I'm all in favor of search. Uh, I mean, I mean, I've been a big argument of, of, of and it's costs almost nothing to be able to find every object that's one to 10 kilometers in the, I mean, that's one of the best things we can do for plant. And it's not even unrealistic to move them. You know, in 10 years, you could easily move an asteroid. So yeah, fortune favors the prepared mind. And I agree with yeah. you there. And I think, I think I would just, the only thing I would add is that, you know, I mean, I think there's a kind of, um, you know, there's sort of, I think the, the, the tipping point stuff gets abused in a particular way, I think, which is to sort of go, given the, um, the, the size of the damages being, you know, basically civilizational catastrophic, then therefore anything I demand politically should be acceptable. And that's what I'm opposed to. And okay. I know you can rise, but that is how it is used. And because you can do the same thing with anything. You can kind of yeah. go, look, if an asteroid hits, yeah. it's nuclear winter, and, and therefore we should put all of our money into that. And you go, well, wait a second, but then, you know, first of all, we're all going to become poor to defending against asteroids. Yeah. There's a kind of, there's more reasonableness in there. You know, yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree with you completely. Yeah. I guess I just think of that there is some global imperative to act rashly now. And I actually see the things come together that fighting climate change may be instrumental in the, your language, but it also achieves the goals that you want too, I guess. And I, yeah. and I think you I, can yeah, do both. As, as a political, as an environmental activist, my experience is that Saving gorillas is about showing the gorilla. Saving the nuclear plant. I don't need Greenland ice sheets to save nuclear plants. I've never, I've never mentioned. Yeah, 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 yeah. I saved them, and I kind of go, look, it's a, you know, it's a great plant. Let me tell you why it's so safe. Let me tell you why the community likes it. By the way, did you know it doesn't produce any air pollution or any water pollution? I don't need Greenland ice sheets or tipping points for that. Okay, and 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 that's why you know I wrote my book too, in the sense that. To, to get people to th to think about the real situation, I say, hey, look, here's what's going to happen. Here's what we know is going to happen. And here's our ways we might be, and, and and here are issues we might need to deal with, and we should start thinking about them now. I mean, the here funny, are the, the funny I, thing I, is that the funny thing is it doesn't persuade the people that are trying to shut down the nuclear plants. Well, I, you know, I'm I guess I yeah I, I look I agree you, I I think you're right. Probably I guess from my point of view is I can think of what I can do. And I yeah. can tell, and I can show people, what I can show people is that the wild speculations and the, and that firm speculation and the firm predictions are different. And here's why, and here's why you should live in the real world and, and deal with the realities of the real world. And, and um, yeah, and I can't show a picture of a gorilla, but I can show, I can show the realities of, uh, of the thermal expansion of water and what's going to happen, whatever we do. Anyway, look, it's been up. Tensions are pure, and and that you and that you're doing it for the right reasons. Well, in in any case, whatever, well, you know, and and there may be reasons that you know, as we all know, unintended consequences. But but um, but I I, I just you know, I, there, there's an old saying, and I've said it before many times. Um, if if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I'm an educator, and so it seems to me ultimately, 
I, I have this somehow, even though it doesn't work that well, ultimately, if you provide people with information, I somehow think it can't hurt. But anyway, always uh, I, I persuade the people that are shutting down nuclear plants either. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And so I hope that we both, I hope somewhere in the three hours that you've kindly and generously devoted, um, and 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 I've enjoyed that somehow people may find some useful information, and I hope uh, you find it as an opportunity to be able to give them give it. And uh, pleasure to meet you, Lawrence. And I appreciate the back and forth and the good spirit and the. Um, the dialogue very much. Yeah, good. I'm glad you were. I, I, I yeah. And it, and that may end our podcast, but if, but I'll just tell you now that, yeah, I was thinking about this and hoping that you would take this in the spirit I intended, because which was a dialogue between, because if I didn't think it was worth talking about the things you talk about, I wouldn't have bothered to have you on in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is great. And I really appreciate it. And, uh, and um, as my friend Steve Weinberg would say, who's an atheist as much as I am, you're doing God's work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Back at you. We define God as love, especially. Yeah. Okay. You take care. Well, Michael, it's great to have you back. We we had a long and interesting conversation almost uh, two years ago, I think, about climate change when your book came out, and yeah. uh, because of various issues uh, associated with the pandemic and otherwise, we hadn't been able to to broadcast it yet, and we were planning to, in fact, just get it out this month, and then. Of course, I discovered you were running for the governor of California, and uh, and and in the interim between the time of the climate change book, you wrote another book called San Francisco, San Francisco, San Francisco. I've got to get that right, and and I and it therefore kind of gave me an idea of of some of the issues that probably were driving you to think about about problems in California, and I thought it's a great time to just you know update a number of things and in particular talk about you know, why you're doing what you're doing and, and the issues that, that you think are important. So I thought we'd have a chance over the next uh, few minutes to do both. So welcome, and it's nice to see you again. You too. Thanks, Thanks Lawrence. I appreciate coming back on. Yeah, well, let's, so, so I'm assuming that San Francisco, San Francisco, I'm going to say it again, San Francisco um, helped motivate what you're doing now. But why don't you give me a little preface to why, why you're doing what you're doing and how it relates to the, some of the issues in that book? Sure. Well, so there's a lot of I have a lot of, um, I've been concerned about this issue of homelessness for a long time. I actually also, it's a book really about homelessness, crime and drugs. I'd worked on drug decriminalization in the late 1990s, including for George Soros's foundation. I helped to decriminalize marijuana. I worked on needle exchange with Maxine Waters and really felt like what we were trying to do was to get more rehab instead of prison for people mm -hmm. committed of drug crimes. Sure. I never worked as much on homelessness, but it never struck me as a problem exactly of poverty. I, there was an open drug scene of mostly heroin users across the street from where I worked in San Francisco in the late night in there, actually the early to mid nineties. My, my aunt had schizophrenia. My parents are psychologists. It's I've always understood what mental illness was and is, but like a lot of people, just the word homelessness shaped my thinking around this being a housing problem. So as late as 2019, I wrote a column for Forbes saying we needed to build more houses to solve homelessness. Some friends of mine were like, you know, this is a drug and mental illness problem. And I was like, oh, right. And so I wrote a second column pointing that out. At that point, my Forbes editors said, you know, you're an energy columnist. You can't write these articles. <laughs> 
And so that's usually, that's one sign that you need to write a book, especially on a topic that is complex, that is about, it does have a housing element too, but it's sort of housing, mental illness, drugs, crime. Apocalypse never became a bestseller. That meant that I was able to, you know, or at least in this case, I was able to write another book because there was some sense in which it might sell well as well. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted it to be on this topic. And the pandemic was a great time to do it because I had to be at home. Um, and it required, and this is where the topic is. I, mean, I live in Berkeley. So this mm-hmm. is where the, the, really the main event was taking place. And yeah, I mean, I'm heartbroken by the situation on the streets. I think it's a humanitarian disaster. I'm angry at the politicians that have made it worse. It doesn't need to be like this. I'm inspired by what they've done in Europe in terms of dealing both with drugs and crime and mental illness. And I think that California is is the is a place that should be pursuing those kinds of well, I guess you might call them progressive policies, um, <laughs> more humanitarian policies rather than the kind of radical left victimology policies that I think are behind the crisis. Well, you know, let's let's pick up there. It's a good segue then, because um, ho- homelessness is obviously an important issue, and it's and it's it's great that that's what drove you into into this particular race. But you ended up by saying sort of the 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 radical left has has basically has displaced woke policies. It's not just with homelessness, and I'm wondering, you know, San Francisco is a lot of people say it's sick for other reasons, uh, woke reasons, and you know, the, yeah. renaming schools and other things. And California is a is a center for for a lot of that. And I'm wondering how you sort of view that in the context of your current race as well. Yeah, well, yeah. So, you know, just to skip to the punchline of the book, because the book works through a, a set of debunking of what this problem is and what it's not. And so just Sort yeah, of like the I climate mean, the, change book in that regard, I guess. Eh? Yeah, it is similar. <laughs> yeah. um, so in this sense, it kind of is the people on the street that live in the open drug markets, which the Europeans call open drug scenes, open drug scenes being places where buyers and sellers meet, but the buyers are in such late stage addiction that they end up just living in the open air drug markets. Yeah. So your intuition that the people in open in so-called homeless encampments are actually late stage drug addicts is correct. You're not wrong about that. Most people mm-hmm. sense that the proverbial mother escaping an abusive husband who's homeless for a night or the person who lost her job and yeah. can't find somewhere to stay as a society. We do a pretty good job of taking care of those folks. Those folks tend to go stay with friends and family. They join millions of other Californians. They move out of state. The strictly poverty-driven homelessness is are, are not folks that go and live in open drug scenes. Open drug scenes are dangerous. They're dirty. They're violent. The women are sexually assaulted. The dealers enforce their trade with machetes. People are murdered. Um, it's, you know, this is real terrible stuff. So why do we allow that? And why do we allow it in the name of compassion? Mm-hmm. And so I get to the bottom of it. And basically there's a a fairly small group of people that call themselves homeless advocates. And it's a trick on your brain. These are not people that are advocates for the people there. In my view, they're Mm -hmm. actually anarchists and I'm not like that. I'm not using it as a disparaging term. That is what they are Mm -hmm. (laughs) and often self-identify as, 
they hate society. They hate capitalist, democratic, liberal society. They think it is evil and produces inequality. So they're sort of creating this outcome from a system that they hate. They justify it as saying, well, you can't get people off the street. So if you really push them on it, they acknowledge that people are, everyone's on drugs and addicted, mm -hmm. but they say, well, you can't mandate uh, rehab and you shouldn't criminalize addiction and homelessness. And I actually agree, but I do think you also have to enforce laws against public camping, public defecation, public drug use, because those are the laws that maintain a society and a civilization. And they actually happen to be the ways that you get people that are really sick with mental illness or addiction, the help that they need. And so my view is where I come to is that, you know, I'm liberal in my concern for the poor. I'm libertarian in my passion for freedom, but I'm conservative in my recognition that you need civilization for, for compassion and freedom. And so the folks that are defending the people on the street are quite radical. Um, they defend it basically by saying these people are victims. They, as victims, everything should be given, nothing required. Basically, a different set of rules should apply to people that we've designated as victims. And that goes for people that are designated victims, whether from experience, like trauma or abuse, or because of skin color. Thus, it's a racist ideology. It suggests that all Black people are victims, which is outrageous. Mm -hmm. But it is what it is. It's a woke ideology that you're very familiar with and that most people are familiar with. Yeah, well, you know, I lived before I moved, before I escaped to where I live now, which is uh, pleasant. I, um, I uh, lived in Portland and or near Portland, and I watched uh, the same, what appeared to be initially well-meaning ideas, uh, destroy a lot of that city and make it unlivable in many ways. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think we, you know, this is an area where, again, I think we have come together in that, in that way of concern about what sounds well-meaning, but is really, uh, but really is destructive. And, uh, and, and, um, and obviously my interest, you know, comment, give my background more in education and some of the concerns that I have in, in California, in particular, about the educational system in 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 at universities, but in public schools, and 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 some of the ridiculous proposals about mathematics, for example, the teaching of math, you may be aware of in California, where where getting the right answer is is viewed in in this document as in some sense white supremacy, and and that yes. that that that's just that's just nonsense, and it needs to be addressed. And uh, very very concerning. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's been this conversation occurring with Douglas Murray and others, which is sort of like, how far does this wokeism stuff go? Well, it'll stop at STEM was the idea that it's not going to go into STEM because that would then mean that the bridges are going to fall down. Yeah. And that's what's happening. There it is. Yeah. What's that? What, and that's what's happened. Exactly. That's what's happening. And it's not just on the radical fringe. I mean, you have governor of California, um, Gavin Newsom's, his own people are proposing that we stop teaching algebra before high school. Why? Because there's racial disparities in math. Yeah. Well, the solution to racial disparities is obviously to improve the performance of black students. Yeah. Not to not to hurt the performance of white students, which is already bad enough. Yeah. We have, a 10, we have a 10% black math proficiency on average in the high schools. It's a total scandal. But so the woke left says they, they say, well, that's entirely because of historical racism. 
could be no other reason. And therefore, they couldn't entertain the fact that, well, I don't know, maybe you need a longer school day or maybe you need a longer school year or maybe the students ought to be studying math more. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Radical maybe, idea. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, may, you know, and, and that you get rid of programs for gifted students because somehow that, you know, again, increases disparities. It's just it's just it's unfortunate yes. for everyone and, and including yeah. including minorities, because it it makes the assumption it makes the assumption that you have to dumb down things rather than the yeah. assumption that you want to bring everyone up, which is really right. what we should be trying to do. That's right. Well, look, I don't want the whole thing to be about woke wokeism, but it's but it's certainly uh, an issue in California. But there are other, you know, I figured we I to ask you about other issues, some of which, sure. you know, if you were governor, you'd have to deal with more generally than just the issues in San Francisco or or yeah. or or, uh, or or this this new wokeism, which California is sort of a, in some sense a center of, but. I mean, this week, you know, there's guns. I mean, that's, you know, look, this yep. week we had that tragic episode of 19 kids, you know, as I've, in full disclosure, I've left the United States. There are many reasons for that, but, um, but, but, but mm. it just seems there's so many it, it, issues that are, that, that are, seem impossible to address effectively by government. And I don't know what, what mm. one would do. Mm. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, I spent much of last night and this morning thinking a lot about the mass shooting. And of course, if I were governor and, and you have a mass shooting on your soil, people look to you to say something. I mean, yeah. it's almost and, you know, they look to you. I, you know, the, I'm struck by, you know, I tweeted something that was not about the shooting last night after the shooting had occurred. And I was sort of reprimanded by, not by a mob or anything, yeah, but just yeah, by one yeah. person who was like, you know, read the room, man, you know? And, yeah, yeah. and I remember my first reaction was defensive and I was like, you know, well, there's other issues than the school shooting. And then I was like, you know, the school shootings have become religious. They've become a kind of, I mean, it's sad, you know, but they've become a kind of holy event in a, I think in a really twisted way. I mean, I guess there's other ways in which you would say, well, 9-11, we treat it as a kind of spiritual event. Mm -hmm. When we remember it, there's a loss of life. I also worry about it, though, because I think that that sort of attitude suggests a resignation um, to them occurring. And that's totally understandable. And to some extent, I think it's just crazy to imagine that there's something you could do in terms of policy to get rid of them. I do support gun safety laws, what we used to call gun control, until the gun control advocates figured out that the word gun control was triggering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. gun safety, so fine. <laughs> gun safety. Obviously, we have a second amendment. You know, it's pretty darn clear amendment. You know, um, it does have this part that says it needs to be a well-regulated militia. I think about that a lot. You know, the intention is clearly well-regulated. Well, it's not well-regulated if mentally ill people are getting super powerful guns. Um, so I don't think we're going to be able to fully, you know, we should have gun safety laws and push them as far as we can under the constitution, but people that really want to get guns are going to be able to get them. Um, and, you know, there's new 3d guns and or the 3d printing guns yeah. and the ability to make guns means it's even harder. And then you're, so then you're dealing with this other issue, which is mental illness. I, just for me, by definition, if you're going to go kill a bunch of school children, you're mentally ill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, arguably, if you kill anybody, you're mentally ill yeah, outside yeah. of war. Yeah. Um, so then you're dealing with a mental illness problem. And I think what's interesting, and I don't want to say inspiring, but I think what is brewing is that there is some recognition in the society that we are in a mental health crisis. 
And the evidence is everywhere. I mean, on the drug issue, deaths from overdose and poisonings rose from 17,000 in the year 2000 to, to 105,000 this year, Lawrence. Wow. I mean, it's a shocking increase. That's almost a, that's a nine, what is that? I'll let you do the math. That's an eight-fold <laughs> increase. <laughs> um, so I, I, as a cosmologist, I'd say it's an order of magnitude increase. Order of magnitude increase, yeah. And um, so that's one indication. We know there's a lot of anxiety disorders among teenagers. They were there before COVID. They were there, there it got worse during COVID. We see the school shootings. I don't know if they're, you know, I think one issue is are they going up or are they down? Who, who knows? But I think there's plenty of evidence that we're in a mental health crisis. And so a big part of my campaign has been to promote a or is to advocate for a universal psychiatry that uh, universal mental health. Um, mm -hmm. I'm calling it Cal Psych and that it argues that it needs to be at the statewide level as opposed to at the county level. And that everyone should have access to it, like everyone should have access, very easy access to a psychiatrist or a therapist. There's been some debate about which psychotherapies are really effective, but it seems there's pretty strong agreement, at least that cognitive behavioral therapy is effective. Cognitive behavioral therapy for people that are not mentally ill is called stoicism. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm a practitioner <laughs> and I'm a strong believer in, in it. And so I, I think, you know, if I become governor or even if I just make it past the primaries, but certainly in any case, I want to keep talking about the need for universal mental health care, better mental health care delivery to get people the care they need, but also to be able to identify um, people at risk of violence like the shooter in Texas. Well, I mean, laudable. I, 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 there was a, a sobering piece I read actually by, in, by Barry Weiss in her in her Substacting this morning about the shootings, which was arguing it mental health, but in some sense, it's more, it's almost more severe. It's really depressing. And, and it relates to some extent this to what's going on in the cities, the sense that there seems to be this emerging um, hatred of, of, of government, of society uh, that's, that you're seeing in, 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 in the anarchism in cities and, and, and in the, in the dysfunctional nature of government. Uh, and, and that kind of the basically, I guess one could describe it almost as the eroding of the social contract, the 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 sense uh, that the Wild West sense is that's coming out that 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 there's that every every person for himself and no no one for anyone else, and and I, I that did her remarks resonate with me in the sense that it's there certain seem certainly seem to be deep problems. You know, I've looked at gun control, gun issues for a long time and written about them. And but, they're, you know, they're and sure. Yeah. The fact the United States has 10 times or 100 times more guns than any other country is a problem. But but there are deeper issues, as you say. Uh, why are these crimes being committed? Why are people so willing to to uh, even argue that we shouldn't have police? Uh, you know, this there homicides are way up, not just, you know, in. in, in in the last year or two higher than anywhere else well isn't it also surprising that we're we're also um encouraging police forces to stand down in many cities i mean they're, yeah. they're, it's hard to imagine there isn't some correlation absolutely no it's a big big argument i make in san francisco as well you know that really 
the the radical left has been trying to get rid of institutions and they've succeeded to some extent and then they kind of drag liberals into it with them so you know it sort of starts with psychiatric hospitals yeah. i mean i started noticing this because i work on nuclear power and this hatred of nuclear power plants the demand that we shut them down yeah. no matter what by climate activists and replace them with fossil fuels they claim yeah. renewables but they don't care if it replaces yeah. They, so there's this mania shut down the psychiatric hospitals, you know, starting in the really after World War II, but accelerating the 60s. Mm-hmm. And then people say, well, what are we going to replace them with? Well, we just got to shut them down. You know, mm-hmm. what about the nuclear power plants? Got to shut them down. And then you get to prisons, jails, police stations. I mean, <laughs> at a certain point, you're like, so we're just getting rid of the institutions that allow for civilization to exist this is not a small matter. This is yeah. this is the difference between barbarism and civilization. And so what's going on here? You know, and, and liberals you're, you're all, who then you're... kind of go, oh, I didn't, you know, we didn't, I didn't, I mean, I, this is what I find with my, my, my Democrat, my Democratic friends and my liberal, we didn't mean, you know, mm. you know, to, to, to shut down the police stations. Well, that's what defunding the police means. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, and, and it goes beyond that. I, you're almost seeing politicians saying, we don't want to govern. I mean, we, we, yeah. government is dysfunctional. We want to get in the way of, of someone else governing. And, um, and it's it, so it, it, we, we basically want to destroy the institution of in the, federally in the Congress or, or, or locally in, 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 in House of Representatives and in, in, in states that the, even the politicians are somehow saying we don't have faith in government and government is an institution. If they don't, it's hard to imagine that anyone else can. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it, we're, you worry about it. You worry about it coming on both sides, where on the one hand, the radical left is against these institutions. And then traditionally, conservatives have been, you know, anti-government, you know, the yeah. anti-government libertarianism. So you have a strain of libertarianism on the left and the right that's very, very dangerous for a society like ours. I mean, where San Francisco concludes is that we're a country founded on freedom. It's a very strange thing. Mm-hmm. Never happened before. Um, European countries, of course, were founded on order. And then the freedom was gradually granted. Now, to some extent, freedom was gradually granted here, too. So it's not totally mm-hmm. different in that sense. But there is a way in which I think America is a kind of Peter Pan nation. It's a country that struggled to fully grow up. We have a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. I argue we need a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. <laughs> Oh, interesting. I think that that I think that we're young. I mean, you realize when you go to the Netherlands or you go to France and Europe, you know, that these countries are so old, they predate their liberal democracies. And that when you get underneath that liberal democracy, you do get to some kind of social order that was the king and the the older state. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have that. And I think we are create so, and that's okay. I think we're creating it, but I do think that all of these things are signs that we need to come together around some kind of social order and some kind of taking of responsibility, and that includes institutions that work for the people. Yeah, I, I agree. I couldn't agree more in that sense. I mean, and in full disclosure, and I've noted this before in podcasts and everywhere else. I, I grew up in Canada, and I grew up, and that you know, I grew up in a, under a parliamentary system which is based. I mean, the American system is based on a distrust of government. That's why it's got these you know competing forces that one, you know, can't overrun the other. And whereas a parliamentary system is based in principle on trusted government. And, and so, you know, I grew up with that. And so I always had, when I moved to the United States over 50 years ago, I, I, it was always difficult for me to understand that distrust of government. It still is. But clearly, 
it's it, at least it's appeared to function <laughs> before and now there are problems well look let's let's go to a few more general issues and i want to let you go um, sure. um i mean the other there are issues and obviously the state a governor can't control all these things but i want to ask you about them sure inflation, you know right now inflation is a huge issue it's affecting people it's certainly probably affecting people in san francisco if nowhere else i mean where things are so expensive um yeah. and in los angeles and elsewhere uh, we just got the federal government just spent 40 billion dollars on ukraine which i can't understand and, yeah. and 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 maybe we could talk about that and then the last thing maybe you know go uh, ending up with uh, uh, you know we talked about nuclear power and how important it is to maintain it california has done a good job of trying to get rid of its nuclear power how as governor would you affect that so those let's talk about those three things inflation ukraine and nuclear power yeah well let's um let me start okay i'll start with the the harder ones i mean ukraine all I can say about Ukraine, I wrote a long essay for for Barry Weiss, um, mm -hmm. who I've written now two essays for, and I absolutely adore as an editor and as a person. And she used to edit me years ago, and, and years ago, I haven't been in contact with her, but years ago in the Wall Street Journal. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, so I did a piece for her that just pointed out the what I think is obvious, um, and I was the first to write about it, but it's now been now the Times has sort of said the same thing, which is that the West made Ukraine vulnerable by becoming overly dependent on Russian energy. And the Europe could have relied much more on its own domestic energy reserves, nuclear power being the most important by far, but on certainly on oil and gas or oil and gas from the United States. Instead, it became hugely dependent on Russia. I, among others, literally went to Europe and told them this, argued with them about this, argued with the Germans about this. I received the exact same patronizing response from the Germans that, that President Trump received, who, for whatever our disagreements with Trump, he was spot on about that issue um, and was literally ridiculed by the Germans for raising this issue of overdependence on Russian energy. The, um, I pointed out that, you know, you, that Europe was not going to be able to suddenly cut off Russian energy because energy, I mean, it's just, these are, I think there's been, I think people get into this, people don't understand. It's like energy is the lifeblood of the entire civilization and the economy. It's not like, well, I'm going to go without, you know, um, pistachios this week or something. It's, this is everything. And so, so then the Russian, you know, people say, well, the Europeans are going to move away. Well, I mean, it's going to take years to move away from Russian oil. And by that point, Russian oil, coal and gas by that point, you know, it's clear that Russia will have buyers in India and China who mm -hmm. just don't care as much about the human rights situation in Ukraine as the West does. So for me, the energy independence is absolutely essential to Ukraine. I don't know about the supporting of the Ukrainians fighting the war. I mean, of course, I sympathize with the yeah, Ukrainians. Sure. So do, I. do I want to send them $40 billion in military aid to fight the Russians? I don't know. I just honestly, I am not even. That's not even a political answer. I just don't know. Well, it's, it's great to it's, it's great to no, but it's you know it's nice to have a real answer, not a political one. I think I've offered my new book is called The Known Unknowns, but it's saying I don't know is a really good thing, and we should all say it yeah. more because it means there's something to learn. One thing I would recommend, by the way, it, it's self-serving, but it's true. Is I just had a Jeffrey Sachs on uh, my my um critical mass substack site and also earlier a discussion with noam chomsky on these issues both of whom argue that our policy 
towards Ukraine is basically to make that war continue and 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 that our effort to try and encourage them to go into NATO was provocative and you should but mm -hmm. Jeffrey Sachs is an economist it's worth it's worth I thought his he thought his discussion was very interesting so I'd recommend yeah, yeah. it um but let's see and you know a lot part of that is inflation of course is being related to that and yeah and and um you know it's not an issue that a governor can control or maybe even a president but i don't know if you have any thoughts on it at all well only on the energy side which is that you know there we're in a you know we're in an energy shortage and the energy shortage started before the ukraine invasion and it became yeah. when we got obsessed with climate alarmism and we shut down our oil and gas production and we shut down our nuclear plants and that was bonkers you know you need abundant energy we needed those nuclear plants we should have been producing more oil and gas domestically um it was this whole esg movement i'm not saying it was the entire thing it was part of it obviously some of it was covid and then some of it later was russian ukraine but we're now experiencing fertilizer shortages and fertilizer shortages means there's food shortages and that means that people are going to go hungry and that's obviously a bad thing inherently but it also leads to massive social unrest yeah. so i would just observe that the people who were so alarmist about climate change that they said we have to stop using fossil fuels or we're going to have famines are now quiet as mice about the fact that the shortage of fossil fuels is resulting in a shortage of, of fertilizer and famine reinforces the point that I made in Apocalypse Never that their real concern was not climate change, it's actually modernity, it's development, it's growth, and it's I think it comes from that same hatred of society and civilization that we were describing earlier. Um, not all climate alarmists, I'm saying, mm -hmm. but certainly the really nihilistic yeah, there's, there, there's certainly a fringe of everything. Obviously, I yeah. have great, as you know, great concerns about climate change in a number of ways from a scientific perspective. But I think the notion that what's clear and something we agreed on earlier in our discussion, which is going to air at the same time as this, is that yeah. we, if we're really, in, if we're really concerned about the long-term future, we have to make sure that, especially poor countries, have an infrastructure now that allows them to deal with their problems, and those are in, those are energy problems to a large extent, and water. And and we need to have that if we're going to be prepared for a world in where we can move to to other, you know, to more complex and other maybe self-sufficient energy, non-fossil fuel producing energy sources. And so I think we really have to look at what the issues are now. And and of course, Ukraine, speaking of famine, I was just reading something like 28 percent of the wheat uh, used around the world comes from that region. And that's now yes. going to be an, a problem. I mean, that that alone, besides the fertilizer shortage, is going to is going to cause a huge issue and so there are all these i mean these are complex issues with feedback and as you say and and i've argued in in even in the climate change book climate change itself may not affect if 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 if, if the mekong river if the sea levels rise in in vietnam it's not going to affect us directly or in bangladesh but there's socio-political problems that are going to result if you know that can that are, those are probably more severe than the physical problems if you people are displaced and 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 so it's a complex world, but yep. let's end on on nuclear power, which is one thing I know. I know you're gonna you're have good things to say about it because you've thought about it, and it's one area where California, in particular, um, uh, can address that. And it's one area where we both agree that we need. I, again, I think where we disagreed the last time is I'm, I, I think one has to take a many pronged approach, and nuclear is not a magic bullet. I think, but but uh, but it's yeah. important. It's an important component. Absolutely. 
So why well, why no, we're look, we're coming off a huge victory. I mean, the governor has now said that he is reconsidering the closure of Diablo Canyon. This is a huge victory. You know, this is a plant that when I started working on it was viewed as just on the verge of collapsing in, yeah. into the ocean and causing a meltdown and killing everybody. I mean, the hysteria in California on Diablo Canyon has was it, like just as recently as six years ago was very intense. I'm very proud of that work in terms of standing up for it because it required a lot of courage and standing up against some really hysterical, demonizing people. Um, took a lot of lot of flack for that, but now there's a plurality of support for saving Diablo. The governor who led the charge to close it is saying they may keep it open. Now, to be fair, it helps that we're in the worst energy crisis in 50 years and that mm -hmm. we're headed for the fourth year of blackouts. And the governor wants to win re-election against me. So <laughs> all those things have contributed, but we're, you know, it's nice to get some recognition from the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post about our efforts to save it. The truth is he's going to have to save it. If he's even, I mean, I'm saying if he's reelected, if I'm reelected, definitely, definitely save it. I was going to say that's going to be a platform commitment right now. If you're elected, it, it, oh. it gets saved. I no, I mean, I mean, absolutely. Um, but I would, if he gets elected, it would be saved too, because he just can't close it for phys inherently physical reasons. You would cause blackouts. There just aren't enough power plants on the grid. And there may be blackouts with it operating. So you need more power. And not only do you need more power for more electricity to support the growth of California, you also need it for desalination and for water recycling. So we're in the worst drought. We're in a terrible drought. It might be a mega drought. We are in uh, in in. We're going to be in mandatory water conservation mode very soon. If not, I think he mm -hmm. just declared some measures already. You know, the, the the level of ignorance on water is amazing to me. It's that on on Twitter, people will say to me because I say we need abundant energy and water, and people say, "Oh, well, what are you going to make it rain?" And I'm like, no, I'm going to do what the Israelis have done, which is the Israelis have have improved desalination so well. So it made it so much more efficient. You know, they just pull the water through these membranes. Yeah. yeah. And people say and they desalinate and people say, oh, you're going to create these big salt blooms. No, you just capture the salt. You know, it's like all these processes that people catastrophize about. So we have desalination technology. The Israelis are actually refilling the Sea of Galilee. They're exporting fresh water to their neighbors. It's not going to solve all the problems in the Middle East, but it's going to it's going to help quite a bit. So that's one of the things we want to do is is build these desalination plants along the coast. I mean, this was the original ecological vision: is you'd have nuclear power plants on the coast that produced electricity, fresh water hydrogen gas for future vehicles yeah and then potentially fertilizer you know that that was these kind of concentrated energy production sites that then really provide the natural resources for your civilization well it would be nice uh um it 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 uh uh <laughs> given the Given the issues that we've talked about, I, I sometimes wonder why anyone would want to enter in the political arena right now. I'm, I applaud you for wanting to do it, but at least to raise these issues. And I thought, and I, to be frank, when I lived in Arizona, I thought of running with never the intention to win, but at least, at least uh, John McCain didn't have a, didn't have a, uh, there were no one wanted to run against him. And I thought of doing it just to, to be able to raise issues. But, 
but um, but I, you know, I, these are important issues, and and indeed, the water issue that raised is very important, and it comes back to climate change again. I one of the things as someone living in the Southwest, it always amazes me that how cavalier people are about the potential predictions for 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 uh, uh, precipitation and water in in that in that part of the world. It doesn't look good, and it's an issue that a lot of people are just putting aside. And I, I think it's so. When I think about climate change impacts, that's certainly and locally in the in the in the states as opposed to the rest of the world, water is a is a huge one that we need to concern ourselves with. Absolutely. And you're yep. right. And I think in a number of these issues, when one talks about desalinization and other areas, the pro the solution the problems are not technological ones; they're political ones. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's all it is. Yeah. They they claim it's a technological problem or an environmental problem, the desalination, but they just don't want the de they don't want they don't want more fresh water or more energy because they don't want more people in California. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's why they won't do it. Well, I, you know, it's hard for me to, to judge what the motivations are, but it's nice to at least talk about the problems and, and at least think about them because otherwise no solutions will come out and it's important to have them vocalized. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have a chance to chat with you because I think these are important issues that need to be discussed and I know you're thinking about some of them. So it's nice to have a chance to discuss them. Yeah, same here, Lawrence. Good to okay. see you again. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.